Hi, and welcome to a new year of Coco Disaster. I'm Chorpsaway. And I'm Zane Zero. And for our first episode of 2018, we're going to be talking about the the end of last year. We're going to talk about all of the shows we watched from this uh, just-finished fall season. Uh, we had a nice little break between this season and last with New Year's to kind of catch up on everything, make sure that we're properly prepared, and I think we have a lot to say about this season. We both watched a lot of shows. We both watched very different shows. Yeah, so we act- we do have a lot, in fact, to talk about, and I think a lot of it is good, or at least interesting. Certainly a lot of interesting cases in this one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but we'll get to that in just a bit. First... I want to talk about a couple of the big things that have happened in anime news since the last time we got together. And the first, which I think is probably the biggest one, is that Amazon has shut down Anime Strike as a a paid streaming service. Yes, that happened very recently. Yeah, um, you know, it was kind of weird that they weren't getting anything picked up within the last uh, couple weeks or so with this upcoming to the new season. But officially, they announced, I think it was, like, Thursday, um, that they are, after almost an entire year of having this service, they're they're canceling it, and they're converting instead to just putting all of their anime content for free for Prime users. So, it's just the regular Amazon paywall, rather than this secondary extra $60 a year you'd be paying for Anime Strike. Yeah, thank goodness. it's The the double paywall was a very dumb, bad idea. Because I think there are a lot of people, certainly in the US, um, that already have Amazon Prime for other reasons. And this, I think, makes this just a... It's a more sensible choice for Amazon. As much as I liked their service, it was definitely weird paying them an extra amount just to watch their anime. Yeah. It's, um, and I, I like this because it opens up the, the option for, I think, a lot of people to watch some shows from last year that were really good, but just were, were less accessible, uh, thanks to that double paywall. You know, things like last season's Land of the Lustrous, or, you know, even going farther back, there's like, um, Grimoire of Zero. I'm hesitant to say Sagrada Reset. There was Sagrada Reset, you're right. That's also available now to everyone <laughs> on Amazon. We have, like, Ino Yashiki, which was a big one. Um, I think, you know, it opens up some of the, you know, more popular ones, you know, like your Welcome to the Ballrooms and things like that. The only issue is that Amazon is still kind of hard to navigate as far as their anime stuff. Like... I don't think that they have, like, a, a a repository for all of their anime stuff. But, you know, it's, this still opens up the ability for people to watch uh, all these different shows that came out last year in a legal, legit way that I think is just more accessible in general to, to other people who would already have Prime regardless. So, yeah, it's cool. Oh, hell yeah. You know what they can watch? Vatican Miracle Examiner. Oh my god, you could watch the absolute <laughs> um pinnacle of bad media from this year. Oh my god. 
uh, truly incredible. Um, yeah, so that's cool. And it seems like uh, a lot of the Sentai stuff that used to be exclusive to Amazon is now moving to High Dive, the other anime streaming service, which uh, I guess now that I'm trying that out this season, we'll see how that goes. Um, other general news stuff, we have the group that kind of got all of the, the Ghibli films after Disney let the rights go on them, uh, G-Kids, has licensed um, both of the uh, Masaki Yuasa films from last year um, for English release. So that includes Lou Over the Wall and the uh, Night is Short Walk-On Girl. Oh, nice, nice. Um, the last one being within the same universe as the, the Tatami Galaxy and by the same author, uh, Tomihiko Morimi. So that's cool. I'm I'm excited to see those because, like, um, uh, Masaki Yuasa having his, like, his studio with Science Saru. A lot of the animation stuff they're doing is really unique and interesting, and I'm excited to see what these two films look like. Like, I've seen little bits of them, but seeing them as a whole. There's also Devilman that just got released. Yeah, Science Saru also did Devilman, which we didn't note in the last episode. But yeah, all of it just dropped on Netflix for, I think, a worldwide release. Yeah. With dubs and everything. So that's kind of cool. Uh, we'll probably talk about that later. It seems like, if nothing else, it is an exciting um, adaptation of some old work. So I'm, I'm interested to look into it. Um, we have more information on the Leighton anime. It is based on Leighton's daughter. So more in line with the that, that latest release of Leighton. Um, what is it? Uh, Catriel and the Millionaire's Conspiracy, I think. Yeah, I still need to get around to playing that. Maybe maybe I'll find out if it'll make a good anime or not. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested because, you know, I wonder if it's going to be more plot heavy then. Uh, we got a number of um, responses from the last time we talked about. We're not sure how a latent adaptation would go, but it seems like that movie they did, The Eternal Diva, found at least a good way to blend sort of the the puzzles and the sort of like adventure plot aspect without it getting dragged down too much. So I'm interested to see where they go with this and maybe this will maybe this will come to <laughs> and tell us the truth of who Leighton had a child with. It will forever be a mystery. <laughs> Give me the facts. Um some other announcements. You'll remember that recently and I guess continuing on through there's that uh Voltron um, series that is like anime inspired. It's by the the studio doing that did um, like Avatar and the Legend of Korra. Right. Apparently, in that same vein, I'm not sure if it's the same companies. I don't believe it is. There is going to be an animated series, like kind of anime inspired, based on Galaga. Galaga. And this is kicking off what they describe as the Galaga Immersive Universe, which I don't know, like, what that implies outside of just this show. Okay, it does say that they're at, they're looking to do interactive games, experiences, and tournaments and stuff, which is weird choice, I feel. Like, same sort of thing with, like, uh, the decision to start with Contra as far as, like, Konami shows go. So it's a weird thing, but I 
I'm interested to see what they do with it. Like, people seem to like that Voltron thing, but, like, that also comes from a source material more um, attached to, like, being an anime, given that it was. Galaga is just, like, an infinite shooter. Yeah, I... I'm kind of speechless at this, because that's so bizarre. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to think, but I guess I'll be keeping my eye out. It's called- So the series is tentatively titled right now Galaga Chronicles Revolution Age, which makes me almost feel like it's going to do like a, a Robotech thing where it's like vaguely related to Galaga in that it's a space shooter, and then they'll do like generations of stories. I don't know. You know what that makes me think of? There was a, a roguelike that was out a while back that was very much like an 80s spaceship anime. That's what this feels like it's gonna be. Oh! Oh, I know, uh, is it Galaxy is the one? Yeah, that's it! I think it. that's, yeah. Yeah, maybe, huh? Because that does have that same sort of thing, it's just like a, it, it's a, it's a big shooter in space, and I guess, you know, it's, it is kind of the big robot sort of thing, so maybe. Maybe, huh. It'll be something, it'll be something to keep our eye out for. We also have an announcement that there is a new production coming for the 50th anniversary project of Lupin the Third, which that would have been last year, but it's getting, you know, the project later, that is being headed by Monkey Punch, the original creator of the manga, um, under the title, Is Lupin Still Raring to Go? Yes. Which seems like, we, yeah, I mean, having given that he's getting his fifth series as well, I'm going to guess yes, but it seems like uh, this particular series is going to be, like, a, a number of callbacks to, like, original series episodes, like, sort of the classic stuff, as well as the ability to create new stories within the universe. That might be neat. Huh. Because I, I don't think, like, Monkey Punch has really been attached to the anime as much, certainly not recently. So it'll be interesting to see, kind of, you know, creator going back to his uh, roots, as it were, and seeing how that turns out. I'm always excited for more Lupin. I feel like it's a good series, and as it's gotten older, it's it's never lost its sense of, like, adventure. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. So yeah, that, that could be cool. Um, we also have a, a new season of Tiger and Bunny uh, coming out. Yeah, that's honest. This is actually a pretty big shocker, considering it's been so many years since season one. Yeah, like, the movies weren't even that recent either, were they? I don't think like, so. Like, I feel like, yeah, the TV series was, um, like, 2011, and I feel like the movies were at least, like, three years ago. Yeah, that sounds right. But, so we know that the movie director isn't coming back for these, but that's not the same as the anime director, so we may see that back. And, um, a number of companies have already, like, shown their interest in getting sponsored by the heroes oh yeah nice nice yeah so they're they're still keeping with that uh it looks like we have nozaki which is a corned beef brand we have an adhesive maker and there's also um a popular <laughs> popular adult item maker tenga ah! looking to get into the ah! business <laughs> <laughs> Like, it's it's a ton of companies like Springwater, you know, Mobile Network, and then it's Tenga, and that's just such a weird list of things. Like, I feel like the the fact that they're sponsored was a big deal, but not who they were sponsored by, outside of maybe um the 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 one sponsored by Pepsi. 
Don't forget about... I mean, there's also Sky High, who is partly sponsored by Ustream. Yeah, well, no, but what I mean is, like, where I don't think it plays into the character as much, maybe. Okay, that's But I feel like if you fair. give... If you give someone the Tanga product placement, I feel like that has to be an integral part of how fucking ashamed they would be as a hero. <laughs> like, that that is their own, like, arc development sort of thing is getting over that. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Truly incredible. I-, I hope someone is sponsored by Twitch TV and we get basically D.Va. Oh man, that'd be cool. Twitch- oh man. If you still have Ustream and you have Twitch, there's a good, like, rivalry thing there. <laughs> I think it'd be cool, though, you know, uh, Tiger and Bunny is a very good series, and I'm, like, I- I'm interested to see what they could do with it more, because I feel like you you have so many heroes in there that you can expand upon and tell more of a story with. Yeah. That could be interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious as to where they're going to go from there, considering where the first season ended. Right. And then... In sad news, pouring one out for my fallen allies, the TQ manga is ending this month. Oh man, another titan coming to a close. January 25th will be the last chapter of TQ. It's just, you know, I came into it kind of late, you know, I, I started about like season 7, season 8, and you know, it's it's just been such like a joyous part of my life and it's sad to see that the manga's ending but hopefully they can get a little more anime out of it and kind of give it a a a good send-off but i guess this makes sense because um the the author of it roots is starting a new manga in a new magazine which is which is called uh, taking a crap in a fancy world toilet and it's it so three chapters are already out. I think it starts its um its serialization this month as well. And it's about a guy who gets taken to a fantasy world and he has to do and he, you know he does adventure stuff, but one day he really has to take a poop and so all of his adventure friends try to get him to the toilet of the gods for him to take the ultimate <laughs> shit. <laughs> That's cool. That's a good Oh premise. man. Man, Isekai's cool again, guys. <laughs> Finally. The DQ guy's taking us back. <laughs> we're, fucking, we're fucking saving anime here. <laughs> oh my lord. God. That's uh, I'm dying. truly incredible. I'm dying. <laughs> I can't wait to see how that turns out. Same. I hope it's animated just like TQ. <laughs> oh man, if everything was animated like TQ. Uh. And then, um... We also have announcement of a second season of Kakegurui. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. That was confirmed? Yeah, it was confirmed now. Ah, nice. What's interesting about that is, I I guess it must have been really popular since it still hasn't, like, premiered in the US, but but I guess it did well enough in Japan to to get that, which is kind of surprising. I didn't really hear a lot about it at the time. But that's exciting because, uh, like I think you had said previously, it kind of ended on sort of like a, a, a nothing sort of plot, and this would give us the chance to kind of get into some of the bigger stuff going on uh, after the point where the anime stopped. Yeah, it's probably going to end with what start with what the final gamble of uh, of what the first season would have 
Right, the the one with the the guy who gets owned so hard his air turns white. No, no, I mean the thing the thing that happens oh, after that Tower of Doors, I think it's called. Oh, right, the to- yeah, the tower. It's going to start with that one for sure. Yeah, yeah. and that's gonna be, that's exciting. I like that one a lot. So yeah, it'll be it'll be neat to see how season two does then because I don't actually. I don't know if right now there's enough material for the whole season two, but that it's already been greenlit is exciting as a fan of the series. Even though I didn't finish like the first season of Kakegurui, I want to go back to it at some point because I do enjoy the series. And with the announcement of a second season, that makes me more excited for like, oh, well, even if this first one didn't end great, there's going to be more. Yeah, you should definitely at least watch up to not the final episode. Yeah, I'll, I'll get around to it at some point. But that's all of the news in between the last time we recorded. You know, some some interesting announcements there. I'm excited that we're getting all these new movies coming to the West. Especially after, you know, 2017 was such a, a great year for anime at the theater. I'm excited to see sort of this this built on more and the opportunity to see more of that. Since that's, I feel like, the import that's hardest to get in terms of like animated stuff is the movies yeah i can definitely see that yeah but so that we have enough time to talk about all of them let's start talking about all of the anime we watched in fall 2017 so much and let's start off with um i think the most anticipated series um from this season sort of the big name adaptation and that's ancient magus bride which at the time we're recording this uh we've just hit the a very hard season break with episode 12 like it kind of does this the short recap of everything that's happened so far yeah i think it was a good place to stop yeah, it definitely, it made a lot of sense. I, I liked it a lot. And again, we're getting to the point where I don't know what's coming forward. So I'm like even more excited for what's coming. But so as a quick recap, Ancient Mage's Bride is a series about a girl named Chisei who is sort of like imbued with magical power and doesn't know how to control it. And she gets bought uh, by a, a, a Magus by the name of um, Elias. And is told that eventually she is going to uh, become his bride, but until then, he is going to sort of train her in the art of magic and sort of like, you know, help her understand this world that sort of like haunted her throughout her life and sort of like come to terms with the the powers that she has. Yeah, it it's definitely uh, a... And- pretty interesting premise i think yeah it, it it doesn't always read the best but i think once you see it in action it really shines because it isn't so focused on this weird sort of like romance or sort of like um possessiveness that it might sound from the thing it's it's a very human story just about sort of like coming to terms with trauma and like you know learning to move forward from the bad and find the find the good in the world and i think it's just the world in um ancient mage's bride is super well developed yeah there's a lot of just it it very quickly establishes that that the magic world is both a mysterious and dangerous place 
Yeah, and like, you know, it. there are just so many different types of creatures and we all get to sort of like know them in a little way through the eyes of a character who doesn't have that familiarity. So it's not, it doesn't feel quite as like talking down to its audience as it does when like, you know, two characters just clearly talk to each other about things they already know. Like we kind of get to plant ourselves in Chise as sort of like, the unaware observer of this world and kind of get to understand sort of everything that's going on with it and these creatures in it. And yeah, like in the first episode, we get this idea that, you know, not all of these creatures have the best intentions of humans in mind is like, Chise sort of like almost gets uh, kidnapped by a couple of fairies, you know? But we also get to see this this better side uh, of magical creatures, like not only through Elias, but we see like characters like um, the the forest sprites, like Oberon, and we see um, the I guess it's like a succubus, the succubus with the with the old man. Oh, you mean the Leoncide? Yeah, we see a lot of different sides of this magical world and the way that they interact with humans, whether it be sort of like coming from a place of sort of like mischief or, you know, active sort of like antagonism or, you know, like helpfulness. There's, there are so many different layers to all the different ways that they interact and the way that they work together that I think is just really cool. And like, it's a really good looking show. The, 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 the style from manga to anime translates really well. And the colors pop, and the world feels vibrant and alive. Yeah, it it definitely feels like the magical world is full of energy and mystery, and I think that is something that's very easy to see. Uh, the uh, The soundtrack really, really helps with that too. Yeah, it like sometimes the soundtrack I feel like is um, a little more pronounced than I'd like, where like the melodies are very, um, very sort of, like, in your face. But I think that ultimately, like, the the sounds and everything that they use really builds on the world and sort of, like, gives this sort of, like, magical feeling to everything. It, it does really enhance, I think, the experience. Yeah. Uh, and, like, you know, um, just through the little plots and sort of, like, the development of Chise's character, we get a lot. Sort of, like, you know, her first interaction with magic with the fairies, but then, like, we have sort of our first big plot where she meets all of the dragons and stuff. And sort of like, it's it's about sort of like this acceptance of of death and the cycle of life sort of thing. And to enjoy what you have while you have it. Right. Because like with the dragon story, it's like they already know when they're going to die. So they they learn not to regret anything. And, you know, even though humans don't have that ability, they should still live as if, you know, they have nothing to lose. And I think it's cool that that comes back later with sort of the, you know, when, when Chise has to build her wand and sort of, like, first figure out how to channel and, you know, control her magic. Because the 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 dragon that she sees die and sort of, like, have these experiences with ends up being sort of the... Her spiritual guide? Yeah, like, you know, it... it uh, the dragons grow into trees when they die, and using the the wood from that tree as the wand, some of that dragon is imbued in her um in her staff. So it's I think the 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 actual like mysticism of the world is neat in the way that all of these different things play together. 
Yeah, I I do like that a lot. It never really feels like the curtain is ever going to be completely drawn back, like you'll have a complete understanding of how the magical world works, because from the episode where uh, they talked about Elias's past, it seems like not even the mages really understand who they are and why they're here. Yeah, like we we get and I like we learn that Elias, you know, first of all, very old, but second of all, like doesn't know about anything from his past before he sort of like was uh, a magus or like you know kind of a like a demon almost. He doesn't know anything about his life before he had the skull head and everything. So there's there's so much about who he was previously that would maybe inform us about the world that we just don't get to know. And I think that's okay. I think that's really good actually. Like. That we're still left with mysteries. Not everything needs to be solved. Yes, that's that's a very important thing, I think. And we get that a lot, too, with, um, the I guess, the main antagonist, as it were, from this first one. Um, uh, Cartophilus, the, I guess, like, the alchemist, who ends up being behind so- some of the, like, bigger sort of dramatic storylines going forward um, with uh, the first one with the, the King of Cats. Yes, the Cat Kingdom was very good, I think. And then uh, later when uh, he's like sort of the direct antagonist for the um, the, the Black Dog storyline. Yeah. It's, it's a very dark story. There are a lot of like sort of dark themes to it. Like, you know, Kingdom of Cats sounds like a lot of fun. And then you realize that sort of like, the, the the kingdom of cats, as it were, have, you know, this this hierarchy and some of these cats have been sacrificing their lives to to like repress this horrible, bulbous, um, like dark energy from sort of this a, a corrupted human that uh Cartophilus sort of created. And, you know, it's it gets into this sort of this like, you know, the the excesses of humanity and the way that like you know, people will corrupt their ideals in order to protect the people that they care about. And, you know, still comes out with a positive message of how, you know, it's it's not what you can do if what you do is, like, bad. It's about what you can do that's still good and still respectful of, like, nature and the world. And we get that a little bit, too, with sort of, like, um, the, the Black Dog arc where we see that Cartophilus is sort of, like, creating... Um, these horrible, like, homunculi out of, um, dead bodies. Chimeras. Or chimeras, yeah, probably a better word. Um, these chimeras of dead bodies and stuff to sort of, like, see if he can create life because he's got lots of issues. Extremely. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because I think this is something that was skipped over in the anime, but I believe at some point, in the in the manga, they refer to him uh, by a name. It's kind of interesting because it plays into some some um, some genuine mythology in the world, which is the Wandering Jew. I think they brought up that name once during that arc. Okay, because this is the thing about um, the the legend is about this um, this this Jew from um, biblical times who taunted Jesus on the way to the crucifixion. And ended up cursed to walk the earth until the the second coming of Christ. Yeah, and they they use the same names for him. Um, 
in the in the anime as they do for that, where it's Cartophilus and it's um, Joseph. Right, right. They call him Joseph, and he says, "Don't you dare call me by that name." I believe is how it went. Yeah, and so it's it's really neat that it it plays into some sort of like like real world legends and sort of makes those real because I think the the idea of him living so long and sort of like gathering all this knowledge and I think cracking under the pressure of eternal life is something that like makes sense for his character for what it's doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. It it feels like he lost his way because he didn't really have a purpose. Yeah, and there are like hints of hints of that that kind of match with the that sort of thing. I'm I'm interested to see how he develops as a character later. There's a lot of just good character stuff even with the villains and like the side characters like um the the super um full metal alchemist looking dude um I don't remember his name either <sighs> um Renfred Yeah, right, right, right. And like there's there's a cool bit there where it's sort of like it shows this different sort of relationship that's like it's similar but not equivalent to the relationship between Chisei and Elias. And we get this different look at sort of like master-student sort of thing with him and um, Alice. And the different ways that like you see this, this respect growing from these different characters. And it matches sort of like the different ways that Chisei and Elias's um, relationship is developing. Especially as we get to sort of like the season break where we learn a lot more about sort of like Chisei's, you know, Chisei's true feelings that she's hiding and kind of like Elias's sort of like slow development of human emotion. Because he talks before like he doesn't get anything about humans and he's kind of using Chisei as a way to to um, measure and understand that. But there seems to be something within him as well that's growing and sort of like developing and we get some really genuinely good moments near the end where both of them realize that they're important to each other as, you know, like, and just that they care about each other, which is something that both of them have been really bad about showing previously in the series, just because, like, Chisei has learned to be so disconnected um, from the world due to her previous treatment and... Elias is not human. Extremely not human. Extremely not. But so I, I really appreciate the way that everything in this is developing. Like, it feels really sentimental. It feels really genuine. Yeah, it feels like the two of them at the end of the season have reached a, a real turning point in their relationship where they can start trusting each other more and becoming closer as master and apprentice. Or some such. Yeah, I'm. I'm interested to see how that that develops from there. And it's, I don't know. It, it's just a really charming series with a lot of great characters. Just, it's got a huge cast, but like, I feel like they're all so distinct that it's easy to at least like know what they're all about, even if you can't remember all of the names. Yeah it it feels like it it has fairly memorable characters yeah for sure like even the minor ones like the like the seal who can turn into a human oh yeah the selkie 
Yeah, everything about that character is just like, oh, well, of course. Like, everything about the character design and everything is like, oh, well, of course. This is what they act like. And they're they're great. Like, they're a super side character, but you still get so much sort of, like, personality from them. Like, just by the way that they, like, eat when they're not part of the conversation. Yeah, the... I, I think one of the things that this show is doing well is that oh, it's drawing from a lot of myths and fairy tales for what it wants for its like stories and such. Like not just not just Japanese stuff, but Celtic stuff and biblical stuff, as you said earlier. It it feels like it's gonna be drawing from a lot of different mythologies with its stories as it goes on. Yeah, and it never just feels like, oh well, I just put you know, they put this in for no reason. Like it it feels like the, the the author has really considered how all of these things sort of play together and sort of like finding the connecting pieces between mythologies. Yeah, I I like it when shows do that, I think. Yeah, I think it has a little bit of um a similar issue with um March Comes in Like a Lion, where like sometimes the comedy feels a little bit out of place when they're doing something really dramatic. But it's never like too long to to feel like super jarring it's just a little like weird but i mean the focus is always on dramatics and that's a thing i think this show and that show both do really well as sort of dramatic storytelling like it's so much more about these these characters um and the way that they interact and you know more than like really trying to land that joke you still get an idea of who all these characters are yeah i i do agree that some of the jokes don't quite land correctly yeah, but, you know, it's. I think that's fine, because they're not- it's, again, such a minor part of the series as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm interested to see how it goes forward. I don't know where it could end at this point, but I think even if it's just more sort of, like, side stories that don't, like, push forward a real plot, I'm still- I'm still happy to see sort of the world that this author has- has put together. It feels like they're going to start some sort of plot soon, just from how- just from the preview of the season, and I'm really curious as to what that's going to be. Yeah, like, I wonder if we get, like, a different minor antagonist, or if we- we come back to, uh, Cartophilus. So, we'll see. I'm- I'm- I'm really excited to sort of, like, dig into the second season. Like, it's one of those shows where it's like, I'm- I'm always excited for the next episode. Hmm. I- I definitely feel you there. Uh, so then, next up, uh, another show that is taking a break, but for a full season this time, and that is Food Wars The Third Plate. So we're at the halfway point of this particular season. Tell me about what's going on. All right. So what happened uh, so far was that the big change between this is that and the previous seasons is that now we actually have a major antagonist in the form of Azami Nakiri, who is uh, the, I guess, main heroine's father, who is uh, an awful, terrible person. And <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> I, okay, we find out at the end of the season break that his plan is essentially to crush all the restaurants that don't conform to what his idea of true gourmet dining is, which is completely unreasonable and unrealistic, but also fits perfectly in a 
crazy over-the-top shonen manga about food. Right, where the most important thing in the world is food. This is the villain you get. Yes. Yes, extremely. And uh, <laughs> It's just the guy from Ratatouille. <laughs> cool. No, but okay. Yeah, and he basically comes in early in the season after a really fun, goofy bout, and he basically takes complete control over the entire cooking school, and he's basically trying to purge all the people that don't conform to his ideals, and and basically the, the minute our protagonist, Soma, has uh, basically formed a small resistance against him, and uh, Arena is basically solely coming around and coming to appreciate what uh, what variety in cooking means, and it's it's just silly, goofy shonen stuff, but right. I, I like it because it goes into over-the-top depth over what food is, and the characters have been... The characters have been developing nicely. We... Arena finally doesn't feel like a huge jerk. She feels more sympathetic because of how fucked up her dad treated her. Mm-hmm. But... We, we finally start to understand where she's coming from and how she's slowly changing, and it's been pretty nice, and I, I've been really enjoying the show that uh, it, it's been going nice so far. The I think one of the things that the anime has helped a lot with is the pacing, because it did not exactly have the best pacing during this part, and especially during the stuff that's going to be happening next season, that part felt really badly paced as a manga, but as an anime, I think the pacing has been pretty tight, and it's benefited from that, uh, that quite a bit. I don't know, it's, it's not, <laughs> I don't really have much else to say about it. it. It's been more of the same, but now there's an actual antagonist, there's a plot driving them forward, it's about the protagonists trying to survive against this, this evil cooking regime that doesn't want them there. <laughs> And uh, and then fighting back against it, it's it's been pretty fun to watch. Okay, that does that does sound pretty good. Yeah, it's it's still the same show. It's still perverted in ways, but now it has a plot. So if you didn't like it before, you probably aren't going to like it now. <laughs> it makes me think of Yakutate Japan, which is just like a big bunch of like nonsense bread making until the finale, where sort of like a villain pops out, and it's this. <laughs> this horrifying bread monster. What? <laughs> yeah, okay, so the spoilers for Yakutachi Japan, sorry, but like, the idea is that there's sort of been this big shot running all of these tournaments for bread making, and eventually he gets like possessed by bread. Like, he eats so much bread that he becomes bread himself and decides that he's going to turn the whole world into bread so that the, the protagonists have to band together and use everything they've learned to create a, a, a bread so powerful and so. Um, distinctive of Japan that they that that the bread the bread monster learns to love. Okay, I don't think this show is going to go in that direction well, no. ever. I'm not saying that far because Yakutai Japan's super a gag sort of thing, but sort of like we've created like sort of this goofy out of nowhere villain that like goes against sort of everything that the the protagonists are about in sort of like this this variety cooking kind of thing. And having to beat him with the power of their their uh, their cooking. Yeah, yeah, it it definitely feels like uh, like they needed an antagonist, even though they already sort of had one in the Elite Ten. But <laughs> okay, but no, they needed a bigger antagonist to to 
bind the Elite Ten together, basically. Right, puts everyone together and gives us a, a common villain, and, like, I think that's, you know, uh, with shows like this where you could basically just make them go on forever, it's a good way of setting, like, a clear goal of, like, this is the, you know, this is at least endgame for an arc kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that arc is, it feels like it's coming to a close in the manga, and okay. I, I'm honestly curious as if the third season ends where I think it'll end, it's going to be, tune into the next season for the finale of this arc, because there's a lot to adapt, but, uh, but I'm, I'm hopeful that the arc ends well, because it, like I said, it, it's benefited from the anime's pacing, and I think that's, it, it's helped it be strong. Eh. Yeah, that's something always nice is like being able to to go from one or the other, either anime or manga, and see the way that the the medium sort of benefits it. Because I think you said before, it's like the the manga is just like really drawn out in a lot of ways that the anime is helping to sort of fix. Yeah, there's there's a part specifically in the ne- in that in season in the second half of the season that I'm looking forward to seeing animated because it's going to be nice seeing that part, but not drawn out over like two months. <laughs> right. I think that's a definitely a benefit as well as sort of like with a lot of these, these manga things, you're not expected to sort of have like a, a start and a resolution each, um, each week or month, depending on what is it. It's in um, Shonen Jump weekly, right? Yeah. Weekly. So with as short as some of those things can be, it's like week to week, you don't always expect a resolution, but week to week with an anime, you always know, okay, well, we're going to go from a, you know, the starting point to at least like a midway. Yeah. So yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely a benefit there that can be for like, I think shows that like you're describing, like Shonen stuff that can really benefit from that. So that's cool. But yeah, we'll, we'll have to see how that goes again uh, once spring comes around. Yeah, it's, it's been a real fun ride and I'm excited to see the, the continuation animated. Yeah, cool. All right, so next up, I wanted to talk about Just Because, sort of to to get out of the way. There wasn't a really great place to put all of this together, sort of like the more sentimental shows, but Just Because, it's it's a really unfortunate series because um, it was done by Pine Jam, which previously had done, like, um, it had done Gamers, and it had done um, like Tawawa on Mondays, sort of these, these a little more messy, sort of like um, kind of goofy anime series. And just because was an attempt by the director um, Atsushi Kobayashi to sort of like really tell a a story more akin to like live action, where the idea is to take all of these characters and like their expressions and try to add a lot of like subtle movement to the way everyone emotes in order to to kind of give this this more humanizing element to all of the characters and really sort of develop that and from what i've heard about sort of the the background of the series um pine jam as a studio is just not equipped for that sort of detail week to week so there's just there are a lot of kind of rough moments in Just Because, where it's very clear that they're constantly hitting against deadlines. And they had to take a week off because it, it started getting too bad. But, like, behind all sort of, like, the, the, the structural issues and sort of, like, 
that, you know, those particular problems, just because I think tells a, a fairly mature story about sort of like the arc from going to the end of high school into college and the way that it affects different people. And in particular, all of these characters with sort of like unfulfilled um, relationships and unfulfilled desires. So the basic idea is that we have a cast of like five or six characters who all go to the same school and are sort of like, they're kind of just floating by. Like a lot of them already know what they're doing after high school. They've either already gotten accepted into college or they're being forced to work by their family. But along comes a, a friend of theirs from a long time ago, Eita Izumi, who sort of like shakes that all up. And by the fact that he's there, suddenly all of these characters sort of like find these different resolves and these different ways to, to overcome these impasses and sort of like make strides towards the, the things they really care about. And that shows up in a bunch of different ways. There's a character named Aina who is like a um who's in the photography club and despite her her love of photography she never like enters anything into competitions so the school wants to um kind of like shut down the photography club because it doesn't seem like they're doing anything so with Ada around like this new guy she gets this idea to sort of like use him as a subject and try to do photography stuff with him we have um, Haruto, who's like Ada's best friend, who really likes this girl but doesn't know how to talk to her and decides to sort of like make bets with Ada because they both played baseball before. Like, okay, well, I was never able to get a home run off of you when we played in middle school. If I can get a home run off of you now, I'm going to ask this girl out or I'm going to do this thing or that thing and use this as a, a relationship between the two of them to sort of like get over themselves and sort of like they make all of these different sort of like rituals with each other to trick themselves into finding the resolve to do all of these things that they wish they could do, but they just couldn't. And I really, by the end, I enjoyed the fact that it's such a, it's, it feels like such a mature take on all of these different school relationships and how people play into each other's lives. And like, not all of the endings are happy. Like, Haruto asked this girl out, but because she's going to uh, school in a prefecture, you know, 30, 50 miles away, um, they can't be together. But they they make this promise to to meet up again after college and sort of, like, see where their feelings are after that. And, you know, Aina ends up falling in love with Ada um, through all of her sort of, like, following around for this photography thing. But because he has this different crush that he wants to talk to, Aina ultimately ends up like kind of not getting the chance to to have these relationships and that's still okay you know these characters all seem very mature and understand that this is just how things go not everyone gets their happy ending not everyone you know not everyone wins in the end but still like they all push forward and they learn something from it and i think yeah just because is like a really messy show but i think it has a lot of heart to it and when the animation like is on point it really works in sort of like being a little more subtle in the way that they emote it's not based around these like huge over the top reactions to get you to understand something like you get it because of the way that the voice acting matches with sort of the characters it's really neat when it's at its best 
I'm glad to hear that even after all the production issues, the core of the show turned out to be very good. Yeah, because I remember hearing about just because thanks to um, the the Sakuga blog, which is sort of like this this collective of people who are really in the know as far as um, like the how production is going in Japan, like all of the different animators and stuff. And it yeah, it just seems like from like episode one even that they were running into these huge. Uh, production issues but yeah the the core of the show is still really solid it's still um it still finds a way to make its message known and i think that's really good but yeah I, I i really like that you know it's it's sort of like um suki gakire from a couple seasons ago where it's sort of just like you know a school romance sort of thing but takes a little it's a little less sort of like sentimental and sort of like wraps itself up nicely it's definitely a little more of a mature take and i appreciate that a lot about it so next up just oh my goodness we're taking such a a curveball here from just because tell me about fate apocrypha so fate apocrypha is just okay it it's it's okay it it is an anime with some problems but it, I think it's a pretty solid show. So, Fate, I, I mentioned this last time, during the last review. Fate Apocrypha is an anime uh, f- in uh, spinoff in Fate, following its uh, big Holy Grail war between the Mage Association and the Yeeged Millennia Clan for control of the Greater Grail to see who can get their wish granted. And it halfway through the series, the show takes a turn, and surprise, this one guy is actually a servant, and he's been around since the last Holy Grail War, and he's basically taking taken the Grail to get his witch granted, even before the war is over, because he technically won the last Holy Grail War because he survived. And... Even in the second season, I finally figured out what the show's biggest problem is, and that is its protagonist. It tries to be an ensemble casting, but there are certain cast members that get more spotlight than others. The big one being the homunculus Sieg, who is basically given life and was given the ability to live by one of the servants of one of the Yeeged Millennia ser- servants, uh, Siegfried, which is what, where he gets his name from, but he's basically drawn back into the Grail War to try and save the homunculi and then just to try and stop uh, the main antagonist, uh, Shiro Amakusa, from completing his plan to save humanity so to speak. And the problem with Sieg is that he is very, very boring as a protagonist. Like, shown in protagonist boring, or like a, a step in a different direction for that? He is just... just has no personality whatsoever. He is bland. Mm, okay. e- extraordinarily so, like... He he barely has any motivations. It's It's... He doesn't have any real personality or retort. He's just very much a a blank slate protagonist that you're theoretically supposed to project yourself onto, but he's just not very likable. Or rather, he's just... Eh, I, I can't work up the energy to feel anything about him. 
<laughs> but it's really unfortunate that he's the the protagonist that the spotlight is on a lot when there are other characters around him that have more interesting motivations and desires and such. And it's it's just so unfortunate that he's the protagonist when this show could have been pretty dang good. It I it's sort of similar to Sagrada Risa in that it's wasted potential, mm-hmm. but at least you can see the potential that's there more clearly because there are plenty of scenes without Sieg in it that are good. There, like, there are more characters that hold up the series than, say, in Sagrada Reset, where everything is sort of, like, wasted potential. Yeah. Yeah, there are okay. a couple of characters that are good, like, uh, like, Mordred and, uh, their master, Sisigo. They make a pretty fun team when they're around, and I really wish the series was about them, because they have an actual dynamic between the two of them. They have <laughs> their goals and desires, and it's fun to see them, like, interact with the rest of the cast. They're they're fun, and not like Sieg, who is boring, and even the heroine, uh, Jeanne d'Arc, has some personality and some backbone that you can see sometimes. Like, there's a scene where she is facing off against Jack the Ripper, who is an amalgam of the orphans that were made in the time of <laughs> oh Jack the Ripper. God. And yes, these are amazing sentences that I'm saying. <laughs> that is why I love this series. <laughs> But uh, there is a scene where she admits that she is not a source of pure good, despite being called a saint. She is willing to dirty her hands to accomplish what can be seen as good. And that's a very strong character moment for her. And Sieg doesn't really get any of those. But the story wrapped up okay. The the good guys won. Yay. There are... I have to draw attention in particular to episode 22, which is one of the most fantastically animated things I have ever seen in an anime because of how dynamic and incredible to watch it was. It it did a lot of really good animation tricks, and the, the soundtrack and voice acting, it all managed to work into this this small piece of a show that showed that it could have been a lot better than it was. And... Uh, it, it was such a sight to see. And I, it was just an episode nonstop of heroes fighting other heroes, which is one of the big cool parts of, of Fate, where you got to see uh, Siegfried fight off against Karna, and it was impossible to tell what was going on because the battle was just that over the top, and uh, it, it was just one hell of a thing to watch. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh... The other one of the other big sparks of this show is Astolfo, the big goofball, and he is really fun and the most animated character in the entire show. And he is pretty much the only one of the servants to survive, and that's good because he is one of the most likable characters in this show because he's a big goofball. And I'm I'm glad this show had a couple of, you know, nice points of characters like those two. Yeah. Yeah, it it's a bright spot to an otherwise dull, uh, mostly okay or dull cast, and I'm glad uh, they were around. Everyone loves Astolfo. Yes, everybody does love Astolfo. That's that's an original <laughs> character from this one, right? They're all original characters for Fate Apocrypha. Uh, this was the series where where they uh they debuted. Yes, right. That's what I mean. Okay. Yeah, Fate Apocrypha. I believe in its origins was like. This abandoned MMO idea. <laughs> huh, and okay. 
like this was from years and years ago, and it eventually became the uh, one of the writers. Uh, the the writer who worked on this basically took those ideas and tried to adapt it into a story, and the story, like I said, came out pretty okay. But mm. y- yeah, I I enjoyed the show. It had its high points and its low points, and I I liked it. I'm probably not going to watch it again though. But it was a solid show. Cool. I think my favorite thing coming out of all of this is that uh, there are more screenshots of like people searching for the car- the the real people that these are based off of, and then they just get a whole bunch of fucking fate screenshots for the the uh, the automated Google images. Oh, that! <laughs> uh, like I I just googled for Estolfo, and like it pulls up the Wikipedia page, which is like this is a fictional character in France, like a real person. And just all of the pictures, the images that it pops up immediately are just Estalfa from Fate Apocrypha. <laughs> just oh, cool. That's good. That's good. That's good. And I feel like people were doing more of that over the season where it's like, look at all these different characters who are just now popping up when people do real historical research. And it's only going to happen again with Fate Extra coming this season. Uh, truly remarkable. <laughs> So, in my own sort of um, fantasy uh, action-adventure watching, I watched uh, Children of the Whales. Um, The thing I was really drawn to with Children of the Whales is that it sort of has... It has some very colorful character designs that I really like, but then against the backgrounds, all of the backgrounds feel very... almost like Ghibli-esque, like they're very detailed and sort of like you know, give off this real, this real interesting sense of, like, fantasy to them that I think contrasts really well with sort of, like, the, the, the character designs. But, um, Children of the Whales is a little unfortunate because it's a 12-episode series that's very much like, you know, this is kind of like the first chapter of the series, now buy the manga if you want to see how this develops kind of thing. You know, like, there, there was no good way to end this series, it feels like. Oh, no. But it's one of those unfortunate things like, yeah, they definitely left us at a fucking cliffhanger. <laughs> That's a little uh, unfortunate, but I, I really, I was surprised at how much I ended up enjoying sort of like the world and the characters of it. So the basic idea is that we have this civilization living on a thing called the Mud Whale, which is sort of this like utopian island that's able to float across sort of this like endless sea of sand like as far as we know sort of the world has been just completely taken out and all that's left is are like these this uh these floating countries as it were and uh in this population nine out of ten of each uh, of uh all of the inhabitants have been given this ability to use something called thymia which is sort of this um almost telekinesis like um ability that they all have that also dooms them to an early death like they only last until about 30 if that and then the the rest of the 10 make up sort of like the government because they last longer than everyone else fucked up (laughs) and it focuses around a character named chakaro who's sort of like an archivist for them and he's uh he's 14 and he has thymia and the, the story really kicks off once they stumble across a new island. And this is surprising because their um, their history 
has kind of described that they're sort of like the last the last people on Earth. And when they find this island, they find a new human who has the same abilities as they do with this Thymia. And sort of their recognition of this outside world is what kicks the plot forward and sort of really starts to, to put all of these pieces together in, you know, into play. And it's like, it feels extremely JRPG in the way it's structured. Like, I every, t- every time I looked at, like, the character designs and the way they interact and stuff, every, everything was like, this felt a lot like um, like a, a a more typical like tales of game, like between just sort of like the colorful character designs and all of these different ideals sort of being forced together in in this team of people. Everything kind of gave me uh, gave me that vibe in a good way. I really liked all of these characters. They're they're very interesting, and I think it it's got maybe a little trouble with making villains that are um, like complex like they're they're very much evil for the sake of being evil right now but that's fine they don't need you know we don't always need to have the most um the most uh interesting villains like the the main focus is on all of these different heroes and the way that they're sort of forced to get their clashing ideals to work together and like it's it's got a very interesting sort of setup it's um it's very focused on sort of like Ancient Mage's Bride, it sort of has this this focus on, like, all of these people have such short lives that they need to learn to do their all to make the, you know, to make their lives um, fulfilled. And the different ways that they see how they fulfill those lives, whether it be through sacrifice or whether it be through these, you know, the different work that they can do or, you know, archiving what happens so that future generations will be able to know that they existed and they lived. There are a lot of, um, you know, interesting character developments there. And it's just a, it really is like a beautiful show where it's like, it, it almost feels like kind of watercolor backgrounds on sort of like more commonly cell shaded characters, which gives off this really cool vibe. But, um, I mean, despite the fact that we really only get to see a little bit of the world within these 12 episodes, like, the action is all pretty good. Like, JC Staff, I think, did a good job just animating all of this. It all feels fun, and the world feels like, um, you get sort of, like, these hints at the way that the world works and sort of, like, you know, how these these other countries that they've never experienced sort of, like, react to them. It's, um, there's just a lot going on, and it never feels like it's too overwhelming within the series. Like, this is a this is a shonen series. It's definitely a little more like four kids on that way, but I think that it still has like some good depth because um, the main sort of like conflict that it comes down to is sort of like people on the mud whale sort of denied their their previous country's ideals. So there are these um, more or less like um, living power generators um, that each of these countries has. And they take some part of humanity in order to function. And this country that they originally came from, it fueled on emotions. So their home country is sort of like full of people who are like have their emotions forcibly removed from them and sort of like trained to be soldiers in this sort of like, you know, to create sort of like perfect fighting, um, uncaring people. In order to to wage wars for them and to uh, to sort of like conquer lands, and this group on the mud whale denied that and sort of left 
and were exiled forever with their own thing where this this generator gives the ability for these people to use thymia, but it, instead of feasting on their emotions, it is powered by their lifespans, which is why they die early. And sort of like all of these different revelations come together to sort of like change the way that these characters look at the world and how they then respond to it with like, well, this country is trying to now come back to us and sort of take us all out to sort of hide this um, this group of exiles and how they react to that. And it's, I don't know, there's like a lot going on, but I really ended up enjoying it. I just wish there was like more to the story or an idea that this would be coming back because I, it, it just like really ends on a, a place of like, there's so much more to go on in the story, but we don't have the time to get to it. Do you feel like the show did well enough for it to get a second season? I I do, I don't know that information enough. Like I think it's really well done, but I I don't know if this is big enough to um to to get a second season. I do know that it right before it got an anime announcement, it got announced for an English release of the manga, which if nothing else is like a good sign, you know, I'll be able to to get to it at some point. But I, I would like to see more of this. I think that the the fact that it comes to an anime really enhances some things that I don't think would work as well in a manga format. So yeah, I'm interested to see more, even if it has to come to that. I don't know. I I really liked the series, I think is what it comes down to. It's like it's very like JRPG and sort of like small community is forced into sort of like this big conflict that they have no part in. And, you know, kind of the way that all of these younger people end up coming to terms with sort of like the loss that it's in, uh, that's uh, brought by war and the fact that these other people are so misguided by the fact that they lose their emotions and really removes their humanity from them. And that's sort of like the, the, the crux of the story. Yeah, it, do it does sound like a act one of a JRPG from everything you've said to me. Yeah, so it it's one of those things where it's like, no, I want more. <laughs> like, I don't know, give me a game or something. But yeah, I don't uh I think if you enjoy that sort of like style of JRPG, I think Children of the Whales is worth looking into just because it it has a good way of balancing the cast and it does a good job of like really setting up a world. It's it's neat. So whenever it gets on Netflix, watch that. Nice. Then uh going forward, Zane, tell me about the first half of Garo Vanishing Line. So, Garo Vanishing Line is a the third Garo anime. Uh, Garo is basically a tokusatsu series for adults. So, basically, that just means it can have blood and boobs in it. But, uh, this is... <laughs> yeah. Um, and tokusatsu, but, for those who may not know, is like, uh... I guess more Power Rangers or Kamen Rider-esque, right? It's like... It's supposed to be, like, stunt effects, but it's come to be, like, superhero stuff, as well as, like, the, the giant monster movies, but uh, I'm using it for, like, the, the superhero term. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it... Garo is more or... Well, I'm probably exaggerating, but it's similar to Kamen Rider for adults, and Vanishing Line has nothing to do with any of the other series, as far as I can tell. Uh, just that 
the titular Garo, the the Golden Knight, shows up in all of them. And uh, basically, Vanishing Lion follows the Golden Knight sword as he... <laughs> every time. It gets me every yep. time. Yep. Yeah, it follows Sword and two other Makai alchemists, Luke and Gina, as they try and track down this mysterious organization, conspiracy place, they're not really sure what it is at the start, called El Dorado, and a normal human named Sophie is connected to this El Dorado because apparently her brother disappeared, and the only thing that she, the only clue that she has to find him by is something called El Dorado, and she kind of stumbles into their their daily lives of destroying horrors and and that sort of thing. And what really surprised me about this show is that even though it's sort of a monster of the week show at times, it really cares about its characters. It actually gives them some kind of development. And it lets you know, like, what their stories are. Like, it, it dedicated a whole, a couple of episodes to going over Luke's backstory, which is that his father used to be the greatest silver knight of all, but he became corrupted by the desire of power and killed his mother, and Luke kind of is trying to find his own meaning of strength based on his encounter with his father who basically kickstarted the plot in like episode 8 and one of the most surprising things about this show is that when there was like a battle between sword and uh, Luke's father the, the silver knight who just goes by knight it basically destroyed a massive amount of the city and it's not like other toku shows where it's like oh the damage is all like superficial and stuff this it had a massive lasting impact and showed you like why sword tries to keep himself low low key it's to to limit the damage to the city because sword is trying to protect these people from these horrifying supernatural entities that can just tear them up and i think it's really cool that the show like cares about more than just its main characters it cares about humanity as a whole i guess because it, it definitely wants you to care about its cast and and the world around it and i think another thing that the show does differently is that compared to say common rider is that sword can't save any of the people who turn into monsters he has to kill them and there's an episode that basically hammers it in that they can't save anybody. The only thing they can do is limit damage. And I I think it's a pretty solid, mature take on Kamen Rider on, uh, for what it is. And uh, I like that right now it's a, a big road trip across, like, Wasteland, and you get to see, like, all the goofy horror movie stuff that can happen out in the Wasteland, and I think it's pretty cool and, and fun, and I've really enjoyed the show a lot. It's It's been really surprising for me for having a big, burly, doofy guy named Sword as its protagonist. Right. Yeah, it does sound like it's an interesting sort of like more mature take on that idea. And you can definitely see sort of like where um, the, the like common writer influences specifically come from, like sort of the, the corruption of people to make them monsters. And it does sound like it's doing some really neat stuff to sort of like be a more mature take on that story and try to like make it a little more grounded in reality for what's that for what that's worth right like 
you know, all damage can't be superficial. You know, everything sort of has a price to it. Yeah, it, it it's that, and like, uh, and and what what having power means, at least for for sword and for Luke and for Knight, it it seems to be going in a direction with that sort of theme. And I'm curious as to where the the second season is going to be taking these themes and these characters on this journey. Okay, I mean that's this is good to hear, especially after um. The last Garo series, um, Gurren Nosuki was like super, um, like a lot of people seemed like super down on it. Seemed like it didn't yeah. do particularly well. I think it's like it's sitting below six on like a, a my anime list kind of thing, which is pretty bad. But and like the one before that, I hear is actually pretty good. Um, what is it? Uh, just the original Garo the animation. Yeah. That's what I've heard, too, that the first Garo is good, and anime is good, and the second one has been bad. So it's nice that, you know, they're making a good one of those. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy with it, and it's probably, like, one of the most surprising animes for me this season, in, in the terms of being actually good. Yeah, that's cool. Um, uh, it's, it's good to hear that, because definitely hard to tell, I think, from the beginning, not only just by the series, but also, like, just from the art style and everything, you're not really sure where it can go from. Especially, like, following such a beefcake of a dude as a character, right? Like, there are a lot of easy ways to go with that, but it seems like they are trying for something a little more nuanced. Yeah. Yeah, Sword is a, Sword is a big lunkhead, but he, he definitely has a bit of character to him. He's a good boy. Uh, then, uh, I, I want to talk about Blood Blockade Battlefront and Beyond, the second season of Blood Blockade Battlefront. So, new director on this one, and the, the focus of the first series was sort of on this anime original story about uh, a couple of, I guess not really antagonists, but sort of like alternative characters uh, named White and Black who who kind of insert themselves into the the world of Yasuhiro Naitao's um, story. And the second season is a lot more interested, it seems like, in telling sort of like the individual stories from the manga rather than having sort of this more like you know kind of long form narrative arc to everything so i think that works a lot better because the thing about blood blockade battlefront is it has such a huge ensemble cast of sort of like heroes in in libra which is sort of this i guess like defensive unit to protect um new york from like incoming demon invasions and the, the first series didn't really get a chance to develop a lot of those characters because so much of the action ended up focused on the main character, Leonardo. And this the second season, I think, just does a good job of taking episodes to just focus on other characters and their relationships to each other rather than just focus on Leo. Not that he doesn't get an important part. He's still sort of like the primary focus and like the character that you get to see the world through. But, like, in the first season, we have characters like Chain, who sort of, like, is, like, sort of like a poltergeist, almost. And we have characters like, um, like Gilbert, who is sort of the, the butler for the group, but is still, like, active in doing things uh, for the team that just don't get a chance to be expanded upon. And now we've got all these different episodes that really show what they're like off-duty and on-duty and what their jobs are like. And it goes through all these very different styles of story like sometimes they're doing an infiltration mission sometimes it's sort of like 
you know, protecting a location, like, um, there's, like, an episode where they're, like, a, a phantom hospital ward that sort of, like, pops in between sort of, like, the human dimension and the demon dimension, and the way that this, this group ends up protecting it from people who would attack those who are, uh, unable to, to protect themselves, and stuff like that. Like, there's just a lot of really good individual stories, and there's a lot more humor to this, which I think works really well just because it is such a like a goofy premise and there's a lot of opportunity for sort of like um sillier stuff to happen like um there's an episode near the end called Bratatat mom which is about one of the characters in libra who is um who is a mother and sort of like unfortunately keeps getting pulled into jobs during like the uh the parents day at their kid's school and eventually because one of the kids just like gets so sad that she can't go she like puts together this like um automated sniper that she can use while she's in the middle of parents day and not have to be there and sort of like you know her interactions trying to handle um uh, her work and her family and the way that those end up coming together there's a lot of really cool stories to be mined um from the world of blood blockade battlefront this series really pays off in a way that I don't think the first season did. And you definitely see a lot of um, influences that uh, uh, that Naitao has in this one, where you, like, get more information on this character that's literally just the fish man from Hellboy. And, <laughs> like, it's, it's, it's 100% just the same character, like, lives in a giant tank of water, you know, can't be out without sort of like a thing to uh, to protect his gills and constantly pump them full of water. Just a hundred percent that same character, but with the power to like turn his blood into like a trident, um, and like even plays with that in fun ways where it's like this tech junkie um, who is like driving around one day sees this guy's um, like water respiratory system and thinks it's just like a really dope pair of headphones and hires a bunch of people to like steal them from him and so it becomes like a, a cool infiltration mission where they have to like get these things back from her and like it's i don't know there's a lot of like just fun adventures in it and even some like really good heartfelt stuff where we get to learn a lot about the characters but just i don't know it it feels like this is everything that season one should have been and it doesn't like deny season one like they're like it kind of ties in some of the story beats from the first season that were anime only into this one, but like still feels so distinctly like in, in line with sort of like Nighthouse writing based on stuff like, you know, Trigun and stuff like that and kind of fits that character more. I, I really enjoyed it. Nice. I, I heard like there were some problems with season one, but it sounds like they've been overcome in season two. Yeah. And like <laughs> Blood Blockade Battlefront has like, it has such a good style to it. Like, um, the first, the opening of episode one is just so strong because it, it kind of gives you everything you need to know about the world. Sort of like it opens with it in the middle of sort of like this huge alien infestation and the way they're fighting through it as like some like really strong hip hop beats play under it. And you get sort of the idea of how all the characters interact with each other. And then the ending too is sort of like, um, there's not a great way to describe the aesthetic, but I guess it's very vaporwave. Oh! It's it's this sort of, like, super frantic, 
animation style set to sort of like this this kind of funky song. It's it's almost like um oversaturating you with information because it's just a bunch of like neon characters dancing around and doing like kind of overexcited things and really limited animation. It's really really cool. And I think that it like just it like it's just as good as the ending for the first one was where it like really gets you into the world where like the first season it was like you know kind of everyone dancing around sort of like in suit sort of like playing more into sort of like the the new york style of it and this plays into sort of like the more frantic energy sort of thing that you get from um blood blockade battlefront it's it is really just really good i'm i'm really happy with the season two i'm glad this show sounds like it's a sounds like a good time yeah um so next up maybe not quite a good time but i think one that certainly i've heard is interesting Um, yeah interesting is is the best word for it (laughs) it's the nicest word uh junie tyson or uh, zodiac war all right so junie tyson is a it's by uh niso eisen who did uh the monogatari series katana guitari and um uh, I know there was and Madaka Box and right <laughs> the most popular series that he's done. God, Madaka Box. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but um, it's basically a battle royale between these twelve warriors chosen by these twelve families to compete against each other, and the winner of this war gets a wish, and. It starts off seemingly like it's going to be pretty interesting, and it sort of peters out eventually, and then it gets sort of interesting again, but it feels like it just lost the... 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 what's the word? Uh, Like, lost the plot? Not quite lost the plot, lost momentum, that's it. It lost the momentum it had from the first few episodes, because it kind of meandered about and dragged things out by telling us character backstory that without much going on in the present day it's thematically appropriate backstory but it all just feels weirdly paced Mm -hmm. like there's this whole backstory part of it where like these this shadow organization bets on this on the Junie Tyson and they bet on like their champions and whoever wins, like, they basically have the power to control the world, but that doesn't have anything to do with anything. Like, it doesn't come to a head at the end of the story or anything? Yeah, it's just a background detail. Like, it's not a main thing like you would expect it to be. Hmm. Like, it it almost feels like... I've seen some people say that it almost feels like this is sort of a, a deconstruction of what battle royales are sort of like, because... A lot of the battles end anticlimactically, and they, things just sort of happen. Like a lot of the deaths are very sudden and unexpected in the latter half, and it none of it really feels very satisfying. And then, like, there's usually some sort of twist. Like, like I know you watched Katana Guitari, and mm-hmm. you know, like, like one of the big twists of that. I'm not going to spoil it, but you, like, know how near the end there's, like, a twist that sort of reshapes how you think about it. Right, yeah. It, it it redefines sort of what you saw originally in the series, yeah. Right, so 
This one's big twist is that uh, the the Rat Warrior, his special ability is to basically turn the entire thing into, like, a visual novel time- Like, you know how Virtue's Last Reward had that timeline that you could jump between? Yeah. That's his ability. Huh. Okay, so- But is it still, like, focused on major points of the story and not just whenever he can jump no, to? No, it's- oh, Okay. It's, Okay, basically his ability is that he can try a hundred different possibilities, and mm. then he chooses what one goes into effect. And the reason why it focused on this particular series of events is because this is the w- only one of his 100 paths where he won the uh, the Juni Tyson with him surviving. Okay. A- and it basically explains like why everybody thought, oh, I kind of remember him, but... Like, it's a cool power and all that, but the only time we really get to see the snippets of the other timelines is is during this episode when he basically, like, tries to get out of giving an interview to the guy who runs the Juni Tyson, and in the next episode where he tries to figure out his own wish. And, again, like I said how it kind of ends anticlimactically, his wish is that he doesn't want to remember he had a wish because he feels satisfied with everything he has. Huh, okay, yeah. Yeah, like, it, it's very much a lame ending, but I guess it kind of means something when he was more or less forced to participate in the Juni Tyson. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it kind of calls into question of how many of these warriors chose to participate in the Juni Tyson to get the chance at a wish and and how many of them were simply forced into it to represent their their families and partake in this weird shadow game that chooses who takes control of the world and and such. Right, like I see where the idea of it being a commentary comes into play, but it does sound like it sort of not half-asses it, but doesn't really like fulfill the potential that's there for that sort of story. Yeah, it it feels like all of the interesting parts of the show can only be derived through analyzing the show itself and not from actually watching the show. Hmm, okay. Yeah, that's a little unfortunate from what it sounds like. And it sounds like that's sort of the the idea that I've been getting from hearing other people talk about it. It's like, it's not necessarily like a bad show, but one that has a lot of opportunity that it doesn't, you know, live up to. Yeah, yeah, it it's definitely, like, the middle parts of it being poor pacing, that it's like, you get two episodes dedicated to, like, the the backstory of these brothers, and it's sort of like, it's interesting backstory in that it gives you the idea of, hey, the idea of a battle royale is pretty fucked up, because these guys are essentially on trial for crimes, and their defense is, well, we're going to be a part of the Juni Tyson, and we're entertaining people, so you should just let us go do that, because we're going to be entertaining to people, to the people that are watching this war between fucked-up assholes. Mm-hmm. But it's it's drawn out over two episodes, and nothing really happens in the present time, the, the war itself, so it... Ugh. It's another show that just had this this potential to be cool, but... It really isn't, and that might be a case of the source material being adapted because it's just like a single length novel instead of being like multiple light novels of stuff, like like most other adaptations are. It's just one thing, right? Like it, it might seem like it was drawn out to hit that twelve episodes kind of thing. 
Yeah, like, it might have worked better as, like, a a three OVA sort of thing. Mm, okay. Yeah, that sounds like kind of a shame, like, because I feel like Nisio Isen sort of, like, has a lot of ideas on talking about media and the way we consume it and the way we, like, look at these different sorts of genres, but it doesn't always, like, hit. And it, and it might just be that that's because of the way that we end up consuming it, since we don't get a lot of access to sort of, like, the original novels and stuff. Certainly not with this, like, maybe with Monogatari. Yeah, I, I definitely say Madaka Box touches on that as well as, like, towards the, like, fourth arc. It definitely plays around with its medium very well. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah, it it's a weird thing. It's a weird thing. Yeah, I don't know. But there's clearly something there. It seems like people at least recognize that there's the the potential there, if nothing else. Yeah, something's there. It's just hard to read the message out of it. Hmm. Yeah, that can happen sometimes. I get it. But let's pivot from that to something that we both really like. And that's March Comes In Like a Lion, second season. Yeah, what a good show. This is a... Man, like... Uh, we talked about it a little bit in the sort of the preview stuff when we were talking about getting into it. It really just throws you right in. It really doesn't take any time to sort of like recap because it has so much story to tell as it goes forward. Yeah, it it really didn't have any time to uh, bring you up to speed with how much it wants to tell you. Right. And I'm really glad that I did rewatch it because... <laughs> because it really helped it feel like one continuous story. Yeah, definitely. It's it's just like, you better pick up right where we stopped because we're not stopping for anything. And there's a lot of stories to be told there, even outside of Rey. You know, we have kind of a very shogi-heavy opening of sort of like Rey getting back into the, this hobby of his, you know, you know, this job of his and the way that he interacts with it and still like, because he has so many problems with sort of, like, accepting in some ways, like, his his job and his place in the world. Like, it feels like it's a good way to remind us that he still loves this thing he does, whether or not um, it, it's always, like, his favorite thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, it, it seems like the first episode kind of reminds you that he still does like what he does. Yeah, he just has very conflicted feelings about it. Yeah, but I think one of the things that this show that this season did is it shows that it's not just him who has conflicting feelings over Shogi, like a lot of the people he interacts with seems to have conflicting feelings about Shogi and what it means to them. Yeah, for sure. It's like like although we get Ray's perspective on a lot of it, um a lot of this first bit is uh, more focused on the people around him that are like his competitors and his friends and rivals and stuff. So we do get a lot more information on sort of the the ancillary cast and even like the cast that helps him move forward, like um the the science club that's been converted into a shogi club, you know, his teacher and stuff. We get that, but we also just get so many of the the ancillary characters. And then like even after that, we have a huge arc focused more on on Hinata than than anyone else as we sort of we we pull even farther back from Shogi and pull away from Rei 
and discuss, you know, like the this this particular character's problems at school because I feel like we've always known more about Hinata than any of the other sisters in the story. Like we're always made more aware of her drama, like when she really liked that that boy, and he's so oblivious that he keeps like attaching her interest in him back to Ray because you know. His family really likes uh, likes Shogi and likes Ray in particular. Yeah, but then we we get this this long arc that um, up to the point where I stopped watching is still going. That's focused on Hinata, sort of like in the aftermath of trying to to help a friend with bullying, ended up being bullied herself in like some really big, really harsh ways, and it's. It's kind of hard to watch in a lot of cases just because, like, it's such a powerless sort of thing where, like, there are people on her side, but none of them can do anything about it. And the people that can do things about it, like, are too scared to, like, you know, with her teachers and everything who just, like, don't want to become involved and don't feel like they need to. And it's just, like, a really sad and tragic sort of thing for her to be dealing with and then how you know ray works so hard to to sort of help her out because he knows what it's like to be isolated and you know not feel comfortable in a place that you should and like i think that really like gives a lot of credence to their relationship in a way that again we don't see as much of in this series because it's like it's focusing on so many things this is such like a a laser focused look at just two characters and the way that they interact with each other and the way that they support each other yeah i i think one of the the strongest parts of this whole little arc was um ray taking the uh the ladybug from the ladybug bush and bringing it over to hinata's finger and the the incredible symbolic gesture of that and how it was all animated and framed and all that was was really well done yeah and you have like ray trying to teach her shogi to keep her um occupied not thinking about sort of the things happening at school and like partway through he's like i should really probably be taking it easier on her i keep winning all the time but like from the way she's looking, she's just really excited to be learning about this thing that Ray has so much, has so many stakes in, and like just being able to interact with him on that level. Since previously, like it's been made abundantly clear how many of Ray's non-shogi um, friends have no idea what he's doing or how it's played or anything. So it's 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 this openness and it's this this invitation into each other's world that really defines their relationships. Yeah, it was it's been really heartwarming to see and I think it was uh in the last episode that you watched where like the the science shogi club and his teacher threw him a little party uh for becoming the newcomer king and right. He has to leave to go to the bathroom because he's crying tears of joy because he's so happy that people are like applauding that he's done this thing so well that he's found a place for himself, even though all they make is horrible garbage food. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's such a weird combo. It's like, oh, we learned how to make natto and we learned how to make ramen. Well, eat up, like, oh, <laughs> but yeah, no, you. It's so nice that after I feel like season one 
focuses on a very isolationist ray and the way that like things break through. There's a real sense of development there where Ray is becoming so much more interested in other people and helping them out and like doing his best for others. Yeah, it's it's been amazing to see his character development so far. And this is something I noticed from watching today's episode is that the opening songs of the show seem to be getting more positive sounding. As the series has gone on to, I, I feel like it sort of mirrors Ray's growth as a person. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if that was intentional, but that's what it, it feels like it's, it's something that was intentional and it, it shows how much Ray has come since all the way back in season one. Yeah, for sure. And I, yeah, it's, it's a very cool, like, look, especially like just the way that the openings are done. Like you look at opening one, it's sort of like, a lot of um a lot of imagery of him drowning and stuff but then you look at like the the first opening for season 2 it's a lot more colorful it's a lot more vibrant and it's a lot more focused on ray and the characters just as people together yeah yeah it focuses on him trying to like bond with the kalamotos and i think that that shows you know that that ray definitely has started to uh be able to feel like he can care for other people. Yeah, there's there's a progress there. And like, even though we see things through Ray's perspective, and we, we learn so much about how he changes in the way he views the world, like, it's moments like that that are really good just in terms of giving these, not subtle, but like, it's not overstated the way that he develops in his relationship with others. Yeah, I I think that thing I mentioned earlier about him going to the bathroom because he got too emotional, I think that's one of the most overt changes that has been shown in the show. Mm-hmm. And I think it's really great to see, like, given how much of it is Ray, like, season one certainly was Ray struggling in his job, like, to see him become, you know, the newcomer king to get this title is, is really great because it, it, again, shows progress for him, like, he's becoming better at playing like he thinks about all the things that um oh shoot um i was gonna say totoro but i should use his real name um nikaido uh, yeah nikaido like gives him all this advice and like stops him from making several misplays during this big tournament game and ultimately gives him the title and it's it's really great to see all this different development yeah i i like that we've been able to see more of other characters like we finally got to see what the deal with Nikaido was for for this um right his illness in this season. Yeah, we've which is apparently based on a real shogi player. Huh, okay. That's interesting. Yeah, so it's not like this is just some drama that was completely made up. It had some basis in reality, but it it's nice to see that that Ray even knowing Nikaido's history is willing to continue to play him seriously because that's what Nikaido wants. Mhm. I'm really excited to see how the the second half of March comes in like a lion goes. Um at the time we're talking you're like one episode further but like I don't think that's enough for us to to finish Hinata's story arc which is uh, again taken a, a heavier role now that we've sort of had Ray's newcomer tournament arc as it were we're we're back to Hinata in sort of the way that like she's still affected by this bullying at school and I'm hoping to see like a a nice resolution to that cuz it, it it's been showing that Ray is like so much more like supportive and trying to take care of her like 
after the after his tournament he like remembers um Hinata's schedule and goes to where she is like you know on a school trip and like makes sure that she's feeling okay and feeling comfortable yeah that that was that was an incredibly sweet moment and i i really liked that a, a whole lot but yeah like now that ray's done and it's been it was alongside this whole bullying arc it can go back to the bullying arc and i can say that the latest episode does not even have Rey in it. It is entirely about Hinata and the, her continuing struggle. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it it is a really strong opener for the season. And I like that the story has become confident enough that we don't always need Rey as the perspective character in it. Yeah. Like, there, there have been so many episodes where, like, he just kind of sees things and he doesn't get a chance to be a part of that. And it's, like, kind of fascinating in that way that, like, there's there's so much confidence in its ancillary cast, more or less, to have them hold the show up and still, like, succeed in that way. Yeah, the show is very proud of its characters, and I think that now that we've learned more about Rey, and you've, you've probably noticed this as well, that we're starting to learn more about the ancillary cast, and we're probably going to be learning about uh, more about their struggles and how they're going to develop and such. Yeah, for sure. Excited to see how that turns out. Yeah. I I don't think we've brought this up, but this show has been incredible to watch, like, directorial-wise. It, it's it been really good about that. Yeah, I, I think I talked about this when um, Jordan was still on the show, where Akiyuki Shinbo has a very well-defined bag of tricks when it comes to how he, how he does anime and, like, sort of the unconventional ways that he does cuts and coloring and stuff like that. And sometimes that's, I think, to his detriment that he uses all of these things. But it, it feels like with March Comes in Like a Lion, just because so much of it is sort of like based around um, visualizing these metaphors for the way that like Ray and these other characters feel like in season one with all of, you know, drowning kind of stuff going on. I think the, the style that um, Shinbo does really ends up benefiting it because it's so. Like, it's not just focused on making it kind of weird for, like, the sake of being weird, but, like, it it has a goal to it. Yeah, it, it feels like it's trying to evoke specific emotions, trying to get you to empathize with its characters, with all the, the sharp cuts and the imagery and and that sort of thing. And I think it works very, very well. Yeah, totally. I'm really happy, and I, I'm excited to see how this season closes out. Mm, same here. So then next up, this one was a was a big surprise and like in a really good way for this season. And that is Land of the Lustrous. So I feel like uh, by this point, sort of everyone knows about it. It's not like it's like a hidden gem or anything, <laughs> but um, it's it's a series that just has exploded in popularity thanks to the anime. But yeah, like um, Land of the Lustrous is about uh, a distant future where... The, the Earth is no longer populated by humans. Instead, these human-like creatures, these life forms that are, like, uh, immortal and genderless are formed from the, the rock of the Earth. And they are, they are based on gemstones. And sort of all of these gemstones are forced to fight against Lunarians, who are from the moon, 
And the idea is that they come to abduct these gemstones and turn them into jewelry and, you know, kind of remove the life from them. And the main focus is on a character named uh, Phosphophyllite, uh, which I'll be calling Phos from now on because I don't want to keep saying that, is the youngest of the gems and sort of like doesn't have a job within the group yet. Like everyone's like a medic or a fighter or, you know, recon kind of thing. So while Phos is really excited about um, like joining the team, uh, they don't have any... Uh, skills, so to speak. And so, early on, the focus is on um, is on Fos and their search for uh, a purpose and a thing that they can do to, to help the team out. And it's a story where you think you understand what's going on early on. Sort of like, it, it presents you a very basic plot with very simple character motivations and sort of like personalities and slowly as you watch it it sort of finds ways to redefine the characters and their struggles and it finds new ways to sort of like flip uh elements of the show on its head and really make you rethink things you thought you understood about the story in a way that's like really effective like it's not always like oh here's a big twist as it were but like something will happen within the story that, like, makes you start to contextualize things in a different way than you did originally. Like, uh, uh, they, they meet a, um, I guess, like, a, a water-dwelling creature that's sort of like uh, some kind of crustacean. And from that character, uh, Fos sort of learns this, um, how, how the world has evolved in this distant future. Like, at some point, there were humans, but these humans eventually split into into three distinct races. And so the Lunarians are sort of like the soul of people, and the the gems kind of act as the bone. And these these um these sort of like humanoid crustacean things from the ocean act as like the body. And the Lunarians coming to to kidnap all of these different things is sort of like humanity trying to um to recreate itself to to gather all of the different pieces together and form the the race known as humans once again and the way that these relationships end up building on each other is really fascinating and sort of like again sort of recontextualizes the things that you're taught early on about the setting and the way that it changes and through the whole thing um fos as our as our character like learns all about this world and is just as confused and really just wants to understand the world that they've, that, you know, that they've been living in and how much it is different from what they've been taught their whole lives. And it's done both in a story sense, but also in a very physical sense where every time that Fos messes up and like gets in over their head, they lose a part of their body and are, are sort of have to rebuild it out of new materials. And the way that these gemstones work is that their their memories are within their bodies. So not only is Fos losing, you know, parts of her body as this happens, but she's losing memories as well and losing this knowledge that they used to have. And it's really fascinating the way that sort of like as Fos rebuilds themselves, it's this case of like seeing 
once so much of you is gone, what defines you as a person? You know, what is you when, you know, like half of your body is made up of synthetic material, more or less? Like, there are so many deeper and bigger questions asked within the show than you would expect going in. And it's just like a really well done and fascinating ride of a series. Huh, I did not expect this anime to use the uh, Ship of Theseus paradox. Yeah, it, no, it, I mean, the, it's not as heavy in that specific thing, but there's definitely some, there's definitely some, like, parallels there. Um, And, like, to to get to the actual show itself, like, it is probably the best case for 3D animation that there is out there. It's basically all done in 3D outside of, like, small moments of 2D where, like, I think, like, a little more subtle interaction is needed in terms of, like, what they show on screen. But, like, the 3D is all really well done. The characters, although, like, initially maybe off-putting because they have such, like, a a lanky, sort of, like, unnatural sort of anime body, like, it all moves really well. Like, you can tell that they put a lot of care into making all of these different motions feel natural. And feel like they fit within anime. And the 3D really benefits a series like this where there are like serious action moments because it lets them do things that would just be impossible with 2D, like, like just, you know, big sort of like moving camera shots that follow along with a character that don't have to worry about redrawing the background every time or, you know, changing how you look at this character. It can just follow along. And since they're already done as models, you don't have to do all of this extra work. So, like, it's a lot of front-loaded work, but once they get to actually putting together the episodes, everything just feels, like, really expressive in a way that, like, if you look at some of the other 3D stuff from, like, 2017, you would have never imagined that this would have come out the same year. It really sounds like this is the best anime I didn't watch this year. And now that, like, you know, Amazon has opened its gates, I think that Land of the Lustrous is something that, like, if you have the ability to go see it, you should, because it's such a unique thing, it feels like, in, in the wave of, like, everything else going on this season. Like, this is such a standout, not only in terms of story, but also in terms of, of technical stuff. Like, it really makes the case for 3D. And, like, I think the, the main reason they would have chosen 3D is because all of the, the characters' hair shines like gemstones do. And, like, is semi-translucent and things that you just don't want to do in 2D animation. But they, they really make the style work for this series in a way that, like, I would have never expected going in. Like, I only went in because people were like, look look at this animation. And I saw, like, clips of it. And it's like, wow, that's really, really good. It's like, if I hadn't heard so much about it, it would have been something that I totally passed over too. But it's just such a, it's such a good show. And, like... Like, it's definitely one of those things where it's, like, it ends on sort of, like, the the opening to a new story, but it it, it still feels like it tells a, a more or less complete story, or a complete arc, as it were, for the story. Just, like, the way that Fos has come to see the world, and the way that they have decided to sort of, like, find their place within it, it's, like, it, it still feels like a complete arc where it could develop later, but it's okay if it doesn't in terms of this anime. But I think, given what I've heard about it and, like, the fan reaction, I I think this is going to get pretty big. Like, it seems like this is sort of the thing that's going to get big. And, like, it's really great that 
the the studio behind this orange. This is I think this is their first leading work. Like they've done a lot of 3D work for other series like um like Active Raid and um Dimension W and stuff, but this is like their first front facing sort of project and they've really like found out how to stand out even above things like um Polygon Pictures who are pretty well regarded for their 3D stuff. I think that they make a really strong case for the the evolution of anime. I'll definitely have to check this out at some point then. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. Um, next up, uh, in terms of surprises, this is on the other end of the spectrum. <laughs> this is, uh, Anime Guitarnies. Uh, Zane, tell me about this show. Anime Guitarnies is an anime about anime fans talking about anime. Anime. So the yeah the the focus is on a a club at a school that it just watches anime and talks about production and stuff. It's sort of like I guess it's a it's an analysis on the industry from within the industry, or at least that's what it seems like at the front. It it isn't. It's just talking about anime and doesn't analyze anything at all. <laughs> Cool. It just says, hey, these are things related to anime. Oh, we're going to talk about merchandise. Oh, we're going to talk about how anime has been used to help tourism. Oh, we're going to talk about how about Comicat and God Rays and uh, okay. it, it feels like such a generic show, but there are hints of something weird, such as there is a mascot cat character in this anime, which is not normal. Right. Yeah, and for some reason, the student council really insists on shutting down the anime club, and after they failed, the gang has to make an anime to save (laughs) the anime club. (laughs) And it looks like the cheapest piece of shit anime you've ever seen. And everybody loves it. And my favorite part of them doing it is that they ran out of time to make the credits theme for their anime. So they reuse the credits theme from the anime Guitaris anime. (laughs) They reuse the entire animation. It's so great. (laughs) Cool. And then I hear the anime Guitaris maybe gets a little meta at the end. Maybe it goes off the rails. Yes, it does. Because apparent... Because... After they air their anime, things start getting weird, and all the clubs start going to the anime club for advice, to get advice from anime. And then they start applying the advice to anime in real life, and real life slowly becomes more anime. And then the door to the anime world is open, and then a character who is an actual anime boy comes in and says, THE WORLD WILL SOON BE ENGULFED IN ANIME! And then he gives glasses to the main girl, who is the last sane person in the show, and she puts them on, and everyone's revealed in outlines. You're an anime! And it's just such a ridiculous last couple of episodes. (laughs) Just breaks all the walls down, just becomes the most meta-narrative it can tell. It does, and (laughs) I think it comes to a... Of uh, a somewhat satisfying conclusion, mm-hmm. I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, 
I don't know how to feel about this show, but I think it's a show worth watching, especially now that it's all out. So it's a show better to binge than to watch see, uh, weekly, week to week. It is extremely a better show to binge. Okay, so now, now here's the weird question. Is it, is it good? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It spends, like, most of its airing just, like, pissing around, hinting that, oh, something weird's going on in the background. But when it finally just gets to it, it gets really weird and really unnerving, but also really funny because just goofy-ass meta bullshit happens, like the main character being attacked by an eye catch. Or possibly dying from having a recap episode. Cool. Mid-episode. It... It... I don't know. <laughs> is it to anime what Nier Automata is to video games? No. <laughs> okay. No, it isn't. <laughs> I mean, no, it isn't. I didn't actually expect you to say yes, but I thought I should ask the question. Since 2017 was also the year of a very meta-narrative in terms of video games. <laughs> but Anime Guitaris does not is not that deep. No, it isn't. It's just a fun, goofy meta show about how anime is cool and connects us. I mean, they're not wrong, but... Because, <laughs> like, I feel like the last time we came out with a show that, um, that was like this, uh, Vatican Miracle Examiners, I think we could both agree, not a good show, but it sure was fun to watch. Where, where does anime <laughs> guitars fall on this, on this spectrum? Like... I can... <laughs> I I had fun screaming about how stupid and meta the show was, but I feel like it is a show much better appreciated when you can watch it all at once, because you don't have to deal with it pretending to be a generic show that talks about anime and is sometimes meta, because then you can just see it descend into utter madness for, like, the last three episodes, which is a really fun dissension into madness. <laughs> Yeah, because I feel like early on it was like, oh, you know, they make a little bit of comment on, like, the anime industry and stuff, and that was kind of it. Like, it's just otherwise, like, a slice-of-life school show. But then, at the end, everyone was, like, flipping out about how it, like, really just went balls to the wall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how I feel about it, but, I mean... It also did stuff like, oh, we're going to talk about the three-episode test on our third episode, and we're specifically going to bring up how, oh, if a show doesn't change by its third episode, then that means it's going to be intent on doing what it's doing for the rest of the ride. And guess what this show didn't do? All on the nose there. Yeah. Anime Guitaris is a show. I, I don't think it's good <laughs> or... It's definitely not good, but I'm not sure if it's bad. Okay. It's one of the most shows to air the 2017. <laughs> yes, it is definitely a show that aired in 2017. Because I remember people were talking about like, oh, you know, it kind of says some some smart stuff about like legal streaming and Blu-ray sales and stuff and the way that like overseas market affects um, anime popularity and stuff. Like, I feel like it accidentally occasionally hit on like important things that, you know, like fans might not know about. But otherwise, it's like a hot mess. <laughs> it's an it definitely feels like it's an intentional hot mess, but and accidentally kind of smart before that. <laughs> yes, 
<laughs> any smartness, any smartness is is definitely accidental. Cool. Any knowledge that you gain was by accident because this show is is very intentionally silly. <laughs> cool. Watch anime guitaris, or maybe don't. Uh, it's you can do it if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> so next up. I watched all of Urahara, which is a weird, it's a weird show. It, it bucks a lot of more traditional trends in, in TV anime, like just the way it's structured and put together. Like, I think a lot of, um, it's, it's webcomic roots comes out in the way that it like puts together, um, frames and stuff like a lot of just sort of like overlapping picture-in-picture sort of stuff happens constantly within the series. Like, they just don't have enough space on the screen to fit everything they want to show, so they just, like, drop other scenes on top of it, like, kind of haphazardly in a way that is, like, very aesthetic. And that's kind of this show. This show is 100% aesthetic, not a lot of, like, substance to it, I think in a lot of ways, that's fine. Because I think that's... The show is extremely about how great creativity is. And how great it is to sort of, like, be recognized for um, these creative things. But more than anything else, that you should be happy with the, um, the work that you create. And, you know, that it, it ultimately is, like better that you created something than just, like, taken something from someone else and called it your influence. It's it's about artistic endeavors in a way that's, like, charming. But the, basically the idea is that these three high school girls have put together a, um, like, a limited-time store in Harajuku, which is sort of this big, kind of, like, fashion-heavy sort of um, area of Japan. And one day, these these aliens called Scoopers show up and the scoopers steal culture from all across the galaxy and have decided to come to Harajuku to steal that culture and use it for themselves. And a mysterious girl appears in front of these three as the scoopers are taking over and is basically like, you have a lot of creative power. You're magical girls now. And so they all three become magical girls and uh, decide to fight the, the alien threat. And so it's like, it, it, it f- flops between sort of like discussions about creativity and plots that are about these characters sort of dealing with the fact that maybe they're not as recognized as they'd like to be, or they don't feel like they connect as well in the midst of them, like fighting these really like weird sort of like goopy aliens. <laughs> and then they like explode into candy and stuff like there's there's an aesthetic to it where everything has to be cute. Even the even the monsters are cute, but everything is so like every screen feels like it's filled with things that are just like we need that there so that the screen is cute. Like they will draw happy faces on things that are inanimate constantly in the background just to make them cuter. Or like th- there'll be like backgrounds that are kind of sloppily drawn, like not a lot of um straight lines or anything, but they'll draw like four or five teddy bears with smiley faces on them throughout the room just to be like no we gotta put more cute things in here more cute things and the aliens explode into like 
multicolored candies and snacks and stuff in a way that just screams like, all we can do is saturate this world with pastel colors and smiley faces to make it so that this is even cuter than you might expect. This sounds like a show with an extremely powerful aesthetic. Oh, 100%. Everything is for the aesthetic. There's nothing that doesn't work for the aesthetic. And so, like, it's a mostly harmless show. Like, I was just watching it because I enjoyed the the art style and everything. I didn't really get super into it. But I know some people that were very into it just because of sort of, like, its aesthetic and artistic merit in terms of just, like, filling the background and stuff and really like putting a lot of detail into its world so it sounds like a good junk food show then yeah it is a good junk food show um there's a portion near the end that i thought was like a little weird where it like suddenly goes like really dark in terms of sort of like the way that all of these characters look at their artistic endeavors and sort of like come to these sort of like warped realizations that everything they do is sort of, like, um, hacked together from other people's ideas, and there's no true originality. That goes on a lot longer than I expected, where it's, like, a three-episode arc of sort of, like, this downward spiral for the characters that I was kind of happy to have be over. And it comes back with, like, a really good final three episodes, sort of, like, just about how how great it is to create and to, to make things on your own, that I think ends up working out well, but it's, like... It's a, it's a weird sort of, like, arc for it to go, where it's, like, six episodes where you're like, oh, I kind of get what it's going for. Three episodes of this really hard, like, dark turn, and then three episodes where it steers right back into sort of, like, a- exactly what the, the, the first bit was. So it's got a little bit, like, of a weird um, trajectory to it. But yeah, it's it's a very good junk food show if you just want to sort of, like, revel in sort of this, like, pastel wonderland as it were nice yeah and it's like again it's just such a weird thing where it's like you know this company hired this webcomic artist to make a comic about their their stuff and like to feature it and then it gets an anime and it gets way bigger than any of that it's like a it's just like a cool backstory to it too it's uh it's it's not like revolutionizing anything but it's like it's it's got a style to it that can't be denied and so i think it it wins on that, especially since um, the mascot character for this story is a tempura shrimp alien. <laughs> and like, I guess minor spoilers, but it's revealed later that they're like, the, these aliens were just like picking things that they thought were like integral to the culture. And so this guy just picks a, a tempura shrimp to turn into. It's pretty good. And also um, the all of the like ending bumpers, like going into the next episode are someone holding an actual tempura shrimp that they've drawn a face on and are just, like, talking to it. It's pretty good. Uh, all right. There's some good stuff to it. Um, Yeah, that's Urahara. Next up, we're going to do a series of uh, the dropped shows, f- front-loaded with the ones from me and then ending with one that we both dropped. So first up is Two Car, which, like, I was kind of into two car when it started. It's like this, this story about this particular type of motorcycle racing that's like done in, you know, in tandem and teams of two. And it's kind of neat how it does that. Like the 3D is not bad. And I, really, I was just more interested in that part. But like the thing that really turned me off is like all of the characters are kind of bad. 
And the more it goes on, it's like about these characters and the relationships they have both on and off the racetrack and sort of like the way that sort of they, they complement or go against each other. And yeah, it's just like, by, it was probably episode five, it was just like, I realized I just don't like any of the characters and so I don't really care about the relationships. And with how heavy it was going in on that, uh, I just came to the point where it's like, oh, that's really not for me. Especially when, like, these two characters, their, like, relationship is based on one of them sort of being rude to the other because the other one's too timid to do anything. And sort of, like, the the fantasies of the timid one, you know, becoming the dominant power in their race team is, like, shown in this weird, like, uncomfortably, like, sexualized, like, BDSM dream that she has over and over. And it was just like, that's also the point where it's like, oh, I mean, this is just, it's just not me. It's not, it's not for me, you know? And I was going to drop it anyways, but like, that was just an extra part of like, oh, that's weird. And doesn't help the aesthetic at all. But yeah, that's two car. Then we have, um, uh, welcome to the ballroom, which, uh, I think last time we talked about, it, I was like, oh, it kind of seems like it's on a, a forward trajectory where it's getting better and all the things that I didn't like. And then it's like. It did in that it's like, oh, well, it created this 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 dynamic for the main characters that felt more natural. It felt real in a way that was, like, really good and, like, really started to develop these characters in an interesting way. But, like, so it was like, oh, you know, every other character is more interesting than the main character. So I'm excited to see how these other people develop. Then once the main character, Tatara, finds his, his proper partner, Chinatsu... It was like, oh, well, all of these other characters are now getting in the way of the thing that I'm interested in. And they just keep popping up and it doesn't develop that, you know, it doesn't develop that relationship as well as it constantly inserts other people into it. So it keeps having that issue and it it keeps stumbling into the same issue of like really over sexualizing its female characters in a way that got really distracting and like self-indulgent in a way that I really ended up disliking. It's, it's just constantly, like, in your face with the way that it d- handles that. And so, like, while parts of it did get better, the parts of it that were I thought were fine before that got, like, significantly worse in a way that just I didn't want to finish it. And so I I dropped it before. What I hear is, like, you know, the best uh, the best arc of it for the characters, but I just couldn't. I couldn't handle it. It sounds like the good parts got better, but the bad parts also got worse. Yeah. And like, um, it seems like I'm not the only person with this sentiment. As far as I understand, a lot of fans of the series were pretty down on this anime adaptation, from what I hear. Like, overall, it seems like Welcome to the Ballroom just was not the adaptation people wanted, and it seems like... Even before this halfway point, it really fallen off the radar in terms of like anime viewers. It's a weird sort of thing. Dang. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's how it goes sometimes. And then the last one here is Kino's Journey, The Beautiful World. So I think your situation with this lot lot quicker because you watched one episode and then just stopped. Yeah, I don't know. I just I watched one episode and then I just didn't feel like watching another. It just sort of, it, it just sort of happened, I guess. Yeah. It was the anime out of all the ones that I was watching that interested the, me the least, which is weird because I also watched anime guitars. <laughs> right, which is, which I feel like is even less of a premise, but you know, that happens sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. 
I I stopped about episode seven because like, and it seems like a lot of the fans of the original series not so into this one as well. But what it feels like is, it feels like every story in this series is way too short for what it wants to say. Like, it feels like all of these could use a half an episode to another full episode in its story to like really feel like it's telling a a compelling story. Or, or like, you know, trying to have these fully formed ideas. Like, it it just feels like, for the most part, all of the stories end up feeling half-baked. Where it's like, I see what they're trying to do here, but I don't think that they accomplish it in any of the episodes that I watched. And hmm. it, it's a real shame, because I think that, like, the way that they've set up some of these stories is kind of cool, and there's some, like... You know, there's there's some kind of, like, moral ambiguity stuff that's kind of neat. But, like, overall, a lot of it is, like, kind of in your face and really, like, I don't know. It might just be because this is, like, fan favorite stories rather than trying to tell more of a narrative, as far as I understand. Like, because a lot of these stories feel kind of disconnected and they, like, I guess they focus a lot on Kino shooting their gun more than, like, the moral implications of a lot of these different weird countries and their stories. So I don't know. It's like, it's a weird sort of thing that I still want to see the original. Cause I feel like, because from what I hear, it is more what I want where it's a, you know, it's a focus on the story and the ambiguity and everything. But yeah, like this, this adaptation just wasn't doing anything for me. So ultimately I dropped it. And it's a shame because there, there are parts of it that still seem cool. They just don't ever like cash in on that potential. Yeah, I've heard the original is really good, and that's why I was interested in watching it, but... Uh. Yeah, the original might be available somewhere. If not, I'd still look into it. It's like, yeah, I don't know. I, I still want to see the original, but I just wish this one was better. So, the last individual show on here is one I watched and uh, pleasantly surprised by is Girls' Last Tour. I guess... Uh, some people have described Girl's Last Tour as what Kino's journey wants to be, and I, I see that. Girl's Last Tour is the story of two young girls, um, Yuri and Chito, who live in, it seems like a, like a post-apocalypse, sort of like nuclear winter kind of thing. And it takes place just so far into the future as to be irrelevant, and like, everything has reverted to sort of like industrial age world. Um, civilization is basically dead. More or less, uh, Chito and Yuri are, like, some of the last people still living in the, you know, on Earth. The the story is just of, um, these two girls driving around in sort of this, like, miniature, um, like, uh, armored personnel carrier, and just wandering the ruins of the world, making observations about how different the world must have been before sort of like this this apocalypse happened and this there was this there's this huge struggle to survive and it's about not only that but just like the way that when there is kind of no one else and there's nothing in the way how these two bond and form a relationship that's that's really charming it it does a good job of giving the idea that, like, although these two characters couldn't be more different, with Chito sort of being, like, the the reasonable sort of, like, you know, thinking character, Yuri sort of being, like, kind of like the ditzy bodyguard for the two of them, they both have, they both, like, 
can come to terms with each other and understand each other in ways and like it's very interesting in that way and then they meet two other humans throughout the whole thing that also like build on this idea that since this world is so empty they're left to their own devices they're just doing things for the sake of doing them because they feel compelled to do these things like they meet uh, a man who's just mapping out the entirety of their like multi-tiered city to try and like just make sense of of this current world and it's it's really cool the way that sort of like the story is developed because like it's not like the stories are integrally connected but like there's a there's an arc of their characters through each of these that is is apparent so like it always feels like time is going forward which is maybe sort of the thing that was an issue with Kino which is like those stories for a lot of it could have just taken place in any order and it wouldn't have mattered like this one it feels like there's a there's a strong through line to the series and it's just very charming for having such like a simplistic sort of like blobby art style like that kind of um contrasted against this sort of like destroyed industrial world helps to to separate them from from the ruins of everything and like like at some point they go through a church and they sort of like like Cheetah will talk about how she like has read about the, why these things exist but doesn't understand the significance of them and they do that a lot where it's like they keep going to finding all of these different things like they find a bunch of um they find like a a, a mass grave site and sort of like eventually figure out like it it just seems like a big locker system and eventually they figure out oh this is for all the parted people these are their um important belongings that have been left behind for them as like memory of who they were like it's a, it's about piecing together our modern culture from a perspective that has been so heavily divorced from the the superfluousness of the things we do and it's sort of fascinating in that way because it can make more commentary on like you know why people are so insistent on fighting each other and creating conflicts over things that don't make any sense and like the joy of sort of like leaving something behind so that people um remember you and things like that it's a really heartwarming and kind of thoughtful show in a way that you may not expect looking at it when i first heard about it i I had it pitched as sort of like humanity has declined and like i guess it is that but a lot less humorous like it is just about sort of like exploring a world past its prime and trying to make sense of it and like um yeah i just it's it's a really charming show and like everything about it sort of like has this this optimism to it like you know even though the world's destroyed and they can't find anything and all these things have gone to waste you know these two characters are still there and they're taking care of each other and like you know they're making the best of their situation and it's got like a lot of cool moments that I can see why an anime adaptation would be so big because there's a there's like a an episode I think it's episode 5 where it's raining and sort of like these characters discover that when they put different materials under like the these like raindrops that are coming through their um the 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 piece of concrete that's covering them it makes different noises like when it hits their helmets or when it hits a can 
and they sort of like more or less rediscover the idea of music in a world that just doesn't have it. And it's a really cool thing where they like make up a song to it and like make up this beat using just raindrops on these like percussive parts of their, their, um, their materials. And it's, it's like, there's no way that that works in a manga as well as it does in an anime to sort of like show this sort of like glimpse of hope in recapturing, um, culture. And one other like kind of cool thing is that the, the main ending theme is a hundred percent animated by the manga author. So it's done in a completely different style, sort of, um, like a lot messier than the, the, um, anime's art style. And it, it just shows a lot of personality to it because everything's a lot more messy, but everything feels a lot more genuine because of it is like just a really cool sentiment. Like when, um, in Mob Psycho 100, when in the last episode one did the, um, the storyboarding and, uh, and stuff for that, uh, ending part with the Sukunoko. You remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I remember what you're talking about. Yeah, it's, it's a lot like that where it just feels like it's a creator who's really like, taking an active part in recognizing that this thing has gotten big and sort of like, you know, showing their appreciation. It's a, it's a cool little sentiment. And yeah, just as, as a show, I really appreciated sort of the messages it had to say and sort of like the things that it does with the characters. It's like a very quiet, sort of intimate sort of watching thing. I really enjoyed it. It's good. I was going to say, I heard this is like an anime that really benefited from having an adaptation that it was able to do things with a medium that it couldn't do as a manga. Yeah, for sure. There's, there's, there's pieces like that that just really don't make any sense without it. It's like, it's still kind of a cheap adaptation because like the, the 3D is like really bad and they, they, they kind of turn to it often when they have to animate the, um, the, the APC moving forward. But like, you know, White Fox isn't a, isn't a well, isn't a super big studio or anything. So I get it. But like, that never pulls too far away from what makes the show so exciting. You know, that's, that's such a minor part to it where like, you know, it's, it doesn't matter if it doesn't look the best. It's cause it's so much about the writing and the characters and the story. Yeah. It's a, it's a really great little show and a, a big surprise, I think, just based on what you might expect from like the art style and everything. I'm glad to hear it was good, because that, that sounds along the lines of what I've heard about it. Yeah. And last up, as always, it's Reigns time. Welcome back to Yu-Gi-Oh! Welcome back. So, Reigns has been on a little break because of the new year, and thank God, because who, buddy? I don't want them to keep running into production issues. <laughs> but uh, we've now reached the point in the story where... It really feels like we're reaching the end of a of an arc. The villain Revolver, after having all of his uh, cronies defeated, sort of all uh, has decided to take matters into his own hand, activate this horrible pulsating mass of energy in the VR sewers, and create the Tower of Hanoi. <laughs> A hundred percent. If the if the end of this was just playmaker having to solve a Towers of Hanoi puzzle, way into it. But uh, <laughs> uh, where we left off last, I think, is where we first started facing off against all of the um, all of the like, uh, I guess the uh, lieutenants. The lieutenants are like, yeah, 
the, the kind of like second in command of the Knights of Hanoi. And they're all kind of interesting in that they're sort of like, they're all in different ways about sort of like expanding human consciousness and like the evolution of humanity, but in very like distinctly different ways. Like some of them are more actively antagonistic, like, um, like Genome. And then like some of the other characters actually feel like, you know, they, they almost have like a noble cause. Like it, it sort of like muddies sort of the like black and white sort of thing that has been doing in terms of like its villains. Yeah, I was going to say that it feels like Dr. Genome, who has an incredible name, it was sort of like to make you think, oh, the all the Knights of Hanoi are generically evil and whatnot. But then you get to the other two and it feels like they have some purpose behind what they're doing that... There's some sort of danger in the cyverse that they're trying to protect humanity from, and that I may not be quite as straightforward as he seemed. Like, he's not a straightforward good character, even though he lost his memories. Right. So, yeah, it's it's definitely like putting a more gray narrative in there, which it kind of already had because we know that, like, Playmaker, not like the best protagonist or like the nicest protagonist. But it's, it's nice that it's doing it with its villains, too, where the villains aren't just, like, you know, comically evil. But, like, there's some there are some good duels in there. Like, Dr. Genome's duel is really good because it brings back characters, right? Like, this is the time when um, Owie and Go get to, get to take part in more duels and, like, really supplant themselves as part of this plot. And so Dr. Genome fights against Go, who does two turns in the middle where it's like, he does the heel turn where he becomes like a villainous, uh, uh, a villainous wrestler, and then later does a face turn where he becomes a good wrestler again, like his original self. Yeah, that it is. That is such a good part of this whole flipping thing because Go is a huge big ham, and it, it's so good. And what's great about it too is it like it reflects the way that he duels too, where it's like, you know, he. He plays a little more protective when he's like, you know, in he when he's doing the face thing, uh, face and heel. I guess for those who maybe don't know uh, wrestling terminology, face is like a good wrestler and heel is like a bad wrestler, more or less, uh, in terms of like morality. So like when he's like doing the face thing, you know, he's more protective of his monsters. It's a little more defensive. And when he goes and does the heel turn, he like gets a lot more aggressive, and he has a card where he spits acid in Dr. Genome's face. As a symbolic thing, he doesn't just spit acid in a man's face for no reason. He he activates a spell card that's spitting acid into a man's face. He does do it, though. Right, no, he does it in real because, you know, it's VR, but, like, it's, it's one of those things that's really charming and something that's, like, because it's in VR, that's even, like, one step more in terms of, like, immersion for this series that I think helps benefit it. I mean, Go is also the only person who just dresses like how he does in VR in reality. <laughs> right, he never breaks character because there is no character. <laughs> right, he is all Go all the time. Right. And then, like, Owie gets a duel against, um, oh, what's her name? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't remember. I don't but the, remember. But, like, the, the, the female sort of, like, lieutenant and sort of she's got a virus deck that's sort of, like, you know, infecting uh, the, the monsters with Owie, but, like, you know, she she's had this whole thing before where it's like, you know, she was only fighting so that her brother would recognize her as capable and then she just gives up. 
but she realizes that there are people out there that look up to Blue Angel, you know, her persona, for hope. And so I think that it's really great that, um, that, you know, she pops back in and she's like, oh, I realize I have something worth uh, dueling for and does a good job with that. And then Playmaker, you know, we get a little more insight into what he's doing, but not really. Like, he's still just kind of doing what he does. But, like, the plot really starts moving forward. And we have a <laughs> we have a great episode where um, uh, Naoki, the, the, like, mullet kid that keeps following Playmaker around, gets, uh, like, accidentally stumbles on one of Playmaker's cards and decides that this is his time to become a true hero in Vrains and to, like, you know, to protect the innocent. And so he... He has this really terrible avatar that he takes in to fight the Knights of Hanoi. It rules. It is one of the best duels in the series. He looks like a Mega Man villain, <laughs> like a rejected Mega Man villain design. And yeah, it's it's a really it, like in a in a show that generally like keeps pretty serious. It is a duel where he and this like crony Knight of Hanoi both just have incredible bricks uh, in terms of hands. Like they, they just can't play anything. And so it's just the two of them, like, posturing to each other, pretending that they don't have the worst fucking opening hands in existence. <laughs> and it's, it's it's charming. Yeah, I, I've heard some people ca- call it one of the most realistic duels in Vrains. It's, it's, ve- it's very real. I, I love it. Um, but then sort of we get, a, we get more plot where, like, um, Ghost Girl, the, the sort of, like, recon for everyone ends up stumbling into sort of like the I guess like the the final plan for Hanoi and gets destroyed by um Revolver for finding this info out but she's able to pass the info along to Playmaker to decode once he logs out of Reigns and that's where we learn sort of like this this tower of Hanoi has um has erected within the virtual reality area and this thing is going to eventually just wipe out all data and destroy the entire internet uh, once it's activated. And, you know, it's clearly a big deal, because in this world, everything is integrated online. Kind of like in real life, it was just fucked up. But, um, yeah, it's like, you know, everything... This will throw the entire world into panic and will revert us back to before we had technology in terms of, like, culture. And so, like, they have to stop him. And yeah, we we just get a little bit of setup at the start. You know, we don't really get into sort of the the confrontation that comes with that, except that we meet, I guess the the last knight of Hanoi that isn't a uh, revolver. Oh, what's his name? Who's that terrible boy? Specter. I think yes, it's Specter, and he he looks alarmingly like one of the characters from a previous Yu-Gi-Oh! season. He looks a lot like Aster Phoenix, but like with a huge nose. I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought that. Ah, yes. It's so, so weird. It, he's just like this horrible goblin man. <laughs> and so Aoi is about to face off against him as Go and Playmaker try to make their way into the Tower of Hanoi to stop Revolver. And yeah, I I hope these two weeks off help to mitigate some of the um some of the production issues that they've been running into cuz I hope that they don't have to keep doing recaps. We've had one recap every time we've talked about Vrains. Yeah, and it's like I feel like it's not like they're really terrible recaps because they're still like 
I still like they fit them within the canon well enough where it's like this guy is writing like a log in case that he, you know, the, the, you know, him and Playmaker die so that people will know what's going on kind of thing. And like all of the other ones have been sort of like that where it's like reflecting back on what's happened and preparing for the next thing forward. But it's still really unfortunate that it has to keep happening because it shouldn't have to keep happening like this. But it seems like Yu-Gi-Oh! Reigns has been having some real trouble director changes and stuff like that. So, you know, uh, here's hoping uh, going forward, because now that we're in what seems like Endgame, I'm really excited to see what they do with the duels and what they do with the the story and like how much this accomplishes of like sort of the main plot and what they'll do after this. Because I can't imagine this is the, you know, the end of Reigns is coming at episode 40 or whatever. Is I going to make a heel turn? <laughs> oh my god, and he'll wear a mask too. That's one thing I've appreciated about I too, is like, being like sort of a comic relief mascot character in a series that kind of desperately needs to like, just um, pull back a little and have some fun. I mean, there's also the news reporters. Yeah, the news reporters are nice too. But like, I is like constantly there, like, just kind of overreacting. In a way that maybe in previous Yu-Gi-Oh! series they totally would have. But he's there to do it, and then <laughs> Playmakers are just there to go, like, calm down. I know you're I know you're posturing. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, okay, you got me. But yeah, um, I'm excited for Vrains. Like, this two-week break that they've taken has gotten me really hankering for more card games. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to for uh for Aoi to win her duel against this creep. Mm-hmm. For sure. I also hope Emma doesn't keep losing. Uh, well, she's been turned into Data now, so we'll have to see. <laughs> when she comes back, hopefully she won't lose. Yeah. Yeah, here's hoping. I, I love it when all the characters get to do something and people aren't just there to die. But yeah, um, that's everything. That's the end of 2017 as far as our long-form coverage of it goes. We did it. We survived. We did it. I, I don't know how, but we did it. We survived 2017 and all of its anime. And I like, even up to the end, I feel like we were getting a lot of good series. Like, I've had to think a lot more about sort of like my anime of the year stuff. More so than I expected um, at the beginning of the season. Like, I didn't expect to nearly be like, oh, well... Now all these different shows have to be represented, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about how much I really feel about these compared to other shows that I thought were, like, you know, clinchers earlier on. But yeah, it's just, a, uh, it's been a really solid end of the year for anime. And I've been really excited about all the things we've been seeing. Yeah, just that most of my stuff is still going, ah! <laughs> yeah, that's, that makes it a little bit harder, but you know. Still nice to see certain things come to an end and, like, you know, to to uh, accomplish what they set out to do. Not always is that the best, like maybe in anime Ataris, but, you know, they, they accomplished what they set out to do. It's always nice to see things that succeed. And I think there are a lot of good success stories from this season, even in the shows going on to next season. Yeah, I'd say it was a pretty good season overall. Yeah. So that concludes the 2017 coverage uh, for Coco Disaster. Our next episode will be our Anime of the Year Awards show for 2017. 
at that time, we'll be, you know, putting up our favorite OPs, endings, you know, things like that, and talking about just the the shows that really stood out to us over this entire year. Because sometimes it's a little hard to remember the beginning of this year and all the shows that came forward, but like, there, there was still some good stuff coming out, even if it's a little, you know, less than than later on. I'm I'm really excited to talk about this year because I do think it like it ended up being a pretty well-rounded year for things that I was just way into. Yeah, same here. There are a lot of uh, a lot of good shows, some surprises and some some bizarre ones. <laughs> yeah, surprises both good and bad. <laughs> I try to find one of those every season and I think it's worked out so well. <laughs> I think it's worked out well. And so, before we go though, we got some fan mail things that we are here to discuss and the first one was one that was sent in the during the last episode but i thought it would make more sense talking about it here this one comes in from onlaren and asks do you think Vrain's production issues will cause problems for the series or is it problems with the series that are leading to issues with production um, I think we've talked about this a little bit because, like, I think 10 episodes in, they had to switch directors, which is kind of a cause for concern with, you know, a, a longer-running series. Clearly something's going on back there that, like, isn't going well. And I think the fact that not only was the show, you know, delayed previously, like, it was supposed to air, I think, five weeks before it did, and got pushed back pretty heavily, you can see that, like, Vrains has been uh, awash in production issues since day one. So, I don't know if it's going to cause problems for the series. I feel like every Yu-Gi-Oh! has kind of had its moments where it, like, tanks production just to get to the next part of the story. And, like, you know, in lesser moments, they'll really, like, tank production for the sake of making, you know, the, the big finales and, like, the more important duels really stand out. So, I don't I mean, Range just has it worse than other other series, I think. But like, it's it's a case of they're they're gonna make the sacrifices they need to. But I think the problem definitely lies in production rather than whatever they're doing with the series. Because ultimately, I think the series is doing pretty well at what it seems to want to do. Like the the themes that it's putting together are very clear and self evident, and like don't feel weird or conflicting or anything. Yeah, it feels like. Uh... It feels like that it definitely doesn't want to have those production issues that it's that even in spite of them it's trying to keep going forward and telling the story that it wants to tell. Yeah, for sure. It, it definitely feels like it's a bigger issue with the with not on the the story side. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll see going forward though. Maybe it maybe it shits the bed later. We'll see. Wouldn't be the first time, but um Then we have one coming in from the Toughest Bean which asks, "What what was your favorite anime this season that you'd be embarrassed to be seen watching? And I was thinking about that, I'm like, I feel like last season had a much easier answer, and that answer is Kakegurumi. A hundred percent, that's just gonna be the most embarrassing thing to be caught watching in any situation. I mean, I at least, ha- for me, I have a very obvious answer, because it's Food Wars the third plate. Right, I guess Food Wars still has, um, you know, their the half-naked reaction shots uh, of everyone. Like yes, I don't know if I have anything like super embarrassing on my list of shows I watch. I guess 
the closest would be Orohara because I've already had to deal with enough people going, oh, you like the kid shows? You like some kind of kid? So, like, you know, that's that's a problem. But nothing, like, horribly embarrassing where, like, I feel like I have to, you know, <laughs> scramble to another tab when someone, like, walks in on me or whatever. It's nothing like Kakegurui or something else that's, like, more blatant in sexuality. I guess maybe Welcome to the Ballroom, but I didn't finish that, so but I don't know if that, that counts. Yeah, so I don't know exactly. But I guess that would be the closest one since it really has a thing about boobs. And then, uh, from friend of the show QB, we get the question, uh, what do you think is a show from the fall season that might actually benefit from Netflix-style all-at-once releases? And I think you talked a little bit about this. Um, yes, I I talked about it here, and I I believe I talked about it with QB on Twitter, that uh, that I said that anime guitaris would benefit a lot from just being able to binge it at once because of the fact that it spends, like, nine episodes sort of meandering about around and being goofy and meta and hinting at a deeper crazy meta plot and then actually paying off on those things in the last three or so episodes and i cannot recommend watching the show week to week because off because it was it's just generic it's a generic slice of life show when it doesn't have that big meta payoff at the end <laughs> right uh, i'm trying to think on my end and like I don't think any of the ones that I watched specifically would benefit from, like, a binge-watching comparison to something like a weekly watch, because, like, a lot of the shows I end up watching have, like, sort of, like, big end-of-episode, like, twists or things that, like, kind of reshape how you think about it, and, like, it kind of benefits from the fact that you have time to sort of reflect on it and think about the things that are going on in these particular shows. Um... So my answer is Yu-Gi-Oh! Reigns, because I don't want to keep waiting for episodes to come out. <laughs> <laughs> Give them to me. But you have you have a solid answer, and so everyone... Well, I was going to say watch anime Ataris, but... Mm, uh, <laughs> maybe don't watch anime Ataris. Maybe appreciate anime Ataris. <laughs> I guess if I... Um, change the i think the the idea of this question around a little bit land of the lustrous is a show that's really good when binging just because there's not that like anxiousness to get to the next episode and see what happens because i feel like the narrative is so strong that like it's always the case of once it's done you want to see more you want to know what the consequences of each of these actions are you know the episode ends with something big and defining happening. So maybe that's the one that benefits just because the binge watch sounds way more enjoyable than waiting week to week because it's such a good show. That just sounds like a show you can't wait for rather than a show you could you would want binged. Yeah, that's I think that's the, that's why I have to like tweak it a little bit for what the intention of the 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 uh, question is. I think that's the closest I've got. But yeah, so that reaches the end of this episode. Um, so if you want to send in any of your own Anime of the Year stuff, uh, either your own personal lists, any questions about 2017 the year of anime or anything like that, you can send those to either our Twitter at Coco underscore disaster, or you can send it to 
our uh, email address, which is chorpsawaysa at gmail.com, C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y-S-A at gmail.com. And we'll read them on the air. Hopefully this time we won't go on so long. We need two Anime of the Year episodes, but you never know. You never know with us. It could happen. It could happen. So, Zine, where can they find you on the internet? They can find me on Twitter at at ZaneZero, X-A-I-N-Z-E-R-O. I talk, tweet a lot about things I like in a very excited fashion, such as anime, video games, and anime video games. <laughs> My three favorite things. <laughs> three great tastes that taste great together. Um, you can find me at Chorpsaway, C-H-O-R-P-S-A-W-A-Y on Twitter. You can find uh, uh, me the same on YouTube. And... The show, if you want to check us out besides the things I've already mentioned, you can check us out at CocoDisaster.com, where we have links to all of our um, previous episodes. We have information on our latest episodes. We have access to our our side blog, where a friend of the show, QB, and I talk about uh, other things that maybe don't fit the podcast format. And you can find that at uh, vanilla-blessing.tumblr.com. And yeah, so look forward to that. Uh, as we said before, our next episode is going to be our Anime of the Year discussion, so look forward to that. Uh, following that, our first single serving of the new year will be focusing on the Devil May Cry anime uh, with uh, my friend uh, Bean Splash and discussing maybe its place in the canon and how it... Uh, represents the characters from the game on the whole. And then right after that, we'll be right back into our seasonal coverage, and we'll see you again for uh, for spring. But until then, I've been Chorpsaway. And I'm Zane Zero. And sweet dreams. <laughs>